Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What do you like listening to? Um. <laughs> Don't Chart music. <laughs> Chart music. Hey, up you pop crazed youngsters, and welcome to the latest episode of Chart Music, the podcast that gets its hand right down the back of the settee. I'm your host, I'll need them, but arseholes to me, it's all about the other two people who are with me today, and they are, in order, your friend and mine, and the world's friend, Taylor Parks. Hey up, Taylor. Yeah, hello, back again. <laughs> My other guest today is none other than the first lady of chart music, Ms. Sarah B. Hey up, Sarah. Hello, dear. How are we? I'm quite all right, thank you. Um, good, good, it's good, bloody good. cold, though. And also, it's horrible, isn't it? Spring's fucked off. And I haven't had a lot of sleep, so oh. basically I'm just going to... No, but that should make for an entertaining ramble. I'm just going to say whatever comes into my head, and you'll all have to fucking deal with it. Anything popping interesting happening to your two of late? Sarah, your book's come out. It has. I've got a book out. Plug that fucker. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's great. Um, I've got... I've, oh, I can't do, like, a book plug. That's terrible. Right. I've got, What's it called? It's called Will of the People. What's it a, about? It is a Brexit bedtime story about Lovely. a bloke called Will who fucks everything up. Excellent. And where can where can we purchase this from? Uh, you know, all good bookshops and on the internet and all that sort of thing. And uh, bloody water. It's in Waterstones, this one. My last one didn't get into Fucking Waterstones. Hell. So, you know, like Ponzi actual. I've got no idea where, though, because it's like a bit of a novelty book so mm. i don't know where it, i've been i've been in it's like i don't know where it is so if anybody happens to spot one in the wild um you know do let me know and also fucking pony up and buy it all right well while well, well, i've got your ear um mm. we do need you to to explain to us how easy is it to soil a bra <laughs> we had this conversation last episode where neil uh, told us that on his perambulations around uh, coventry city of culture every now and then he would see a massive bra um, lying about and we got into a conversation about you know how easy is it to soil a bra have you I mean I, I don't want to make it personal but has there ever been a time where you've just gone oh my bra's suddenly filth there I've got a mob it <laughs> a ma- massive bra sorry I'm just I'm, I'm taking uh this is my takeaway from this is not the how soiled it is but how massive it is um well this is what Neil was saying I don't know what I don't know why they need massive bras in Coventry but clearly massive they do bras Maybe it was Lady Godiva. <laughs> oh, well, that's oh, what? So it's like they found Richard III under the car park, and they found Lady Godiva's undercrackers in, uh, you know, in a hedge. In Coventry. In Coventry. Yeah. Um, how easy is it to soil a bra? I, I don't. I that I've never been asked that. What a, I'm, I'm going to have to contemplate. Well, this is what. Um, I don't. Know, they don't. The thing is that they don't. Um, 
you know, unless there's something wrong, they don't normally get very dirty. I mean, they just sort of sit there and no. they sort of mind their business, really, and they do, you know, they they yeah. they hold up what they're supposed to hold up. Um, I've never, no, personally, I've never, I would, um, I would never kind of go, oh, do you know, that's um, that's chafing. I'm gonna, you know, probably that's they're, they're really expensive, like proper, yeah. you know, a decent. Oh, he says as if he's. Fucking no. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, you should be able to get them on the NHS, really. I mean, but you know, there's lots of things you should yeah. be able to get on the NHS that you can't get now. Um, so, uh, in, in answer to your question, uh, pass. Fair enough. We asked Matron, but she wouldn't tell us. <laughs> so let's ask you. Before we go any further, of course, we need to once again drop to our knees and give thanks to the lovely, lovely pop craze youngsters who stepped up to the mark and paid their child support for the bastard child called chart music. And these people include Ian James King, Rudy Millard, Paul Campbell, Bobby Treetops, Jen W, Paul Shields, Andrew Graves. Oh, they all heard the call. They all got their hands in the pockets and they all said, yes, chart music. We know how much effort and diligence goes into finding new ways to describe a show Waddy Waddy record. Take this humble offering and give us more of that sweet, sweet podcast. Thank you. And let's name some more people while we're at it so we can just get the fucking thing out of the way. Nick Duffer, Mike Melia, Graham Clark, Ted Rogers, Ted. we got Ted Rogers' money. I'm doing that. Yeah, I'm doing that sign. I'm doing that hand gesture <laughs> that no one can see. Sarah Richardson, Darren Lamb, Patrick Deakin, and Sam Hooper, whose name I got wrong last time because I am a bellend. Because pop craze youngsters, if chart music is making your nature rise like we know it is. You've got to get out of your seat. You've got to go to patreon.com slash chart music. You've got to yank our G-string open and you've got to shove that money right down to the gusset. You're very good at this. <laughs> anyway, this episode, Pop Craig's Youngsters, takes us all the way back to July the 31st, 1986. Now then, this is the first one from 86 that we've covered, and I can tell you now that out of the collection I've got, which is bound to get bigger sooner or later because Top of the Pops is heading that way on uh, BBC4, this is a year we're going to cover many a time and oft, and and not because it's, it's run full of brilliant music, because it clearly isn't, but there is some mad shit knocking about. So, panel, your thoughts, 1986, music-wise? Um, well... By this point, I was fully entrenched. Uh, this was my horrible year, right? This was my sort of half-educated teenage music snob mm. year. 84 and 85, I'd been learning the history, getting a grounding, going to the record library and getting out all that, all those albums I'd heard of but hadn't heard. Mm. So by 1986, I was ready for the rut. And I had the C86 tape and I liked the Smiths and... Jesus and Mary Jane. The only black artists I like were dead or close to dead. And I was that horrible kid, you know, like raging about daytime radio brainwashing people who mm. I probably imagined as a flock of robot sheep <laughs> voting Tory because the papers told them to and mm. watching mindless TV pap. Mm. Uh, no comprehension of what the world's really like. And that um, sort of knee-jerk rubbish like that archetype which never really died and in mm. fact is now enjoying a, a renaissance yes. god help me that was me and i had the wit to clamber out of that over the next year or two but the chills never left me and i wasted a lot of the next decade or two 
battling that phenomenon, which I now realise cannot be defeated because it's naturally occurring and it's always there in culture and politics and everything. People trying to find themselves, trying to find an uncomplicated cause to make them righteous and create a heroic narrative uh, of themselves. Mm. And it's the roots of tyranny. And you can't fight it directly. You can only try to limit it. But this period, uh, from me being 14 or so, this is where my insider knowledge comes from. Uh, Sarah, you were eight, weren't you? And was music becoming a a definite part of your eight-year-old diet? Yeah, very much so, yeah. I mean, I think I was sort of four or five when I first remember sort of getting into... So I was, you know, well on my way, but also it was all... Mm. It was still quite uh, grown up and scary and mysterious. Um, But also there was Wham!, and I, I liked Wham. Also, um, yeah. I, I was looking at what was out this year, and um, Please by the Pet Shop Boys was out this year, which is obviously an absolutely cracking album. Um, mm. Which I hope I had the wit to be into at the time, but I, I don't know. Um, um, Can't remember. I, Hounds of Love came out in uh, 1985, and then the whole story, yeah. which was Kate Bush's really amazing best of, came out mm. this year, 1986. And my mum had both of those, which meant that I listened to them all the time. So I just listened to loads of Kate Bush all the time at home. It was great. By the time this episode came out, we were one week removed from uh, the wedding of Prince Andrew and Sarah Ferguson. Seeing as we're a week or so away from another third division royal wedding, <laughs> I thought it'd be nice to see what the pop stars uh, of the time had to say about that royal wedding. Uh, thanks to an article in Smash It. So, shall we play a game? Yeah. Go on then. Okay. Which duo said, I'm not a royalist by any means, let's just say that, the wedding... I'll be taping it, of course, to burn. <laughs> I'd be quite happy to see them all in exile. They should all get married to American divorcees. Actually, nuke them. Nuke the royal family. Which duo said that? Orchestral manoeuvres in the dark. Uh, the KLF. <laughs> Orchestral manoeuvres in the dark. Was that, was that an actual thing, though? They were very prescient about the American divorcees, weren't they? Definitely, yes. So, who, which, which rock band said this? I've always been a royalist. I like the Queen and she does a great job. <laughs> Having met Charles and Di, Charles three, four, five times, on layman's terms, he's a smashing bloke. I've got nothing but praise for all of them, except Mark Phillips. I'm not mad about him. <laughs> the Queen has to do so much. They send her off to Umbongo land and they dump something <sighs> in front of her and she thinks... I've got to eat this. They're the hardest working band in the world. <laughs> Status quo. Status quo. I, seriously. Oh, what? Yeah. I, yes, prop- I properly quo. pulled that out of my actual ass because I didn't care. But I can't. Oh, well brilliant. Yeah, come on. We're smashing this. Yeah, you are. You us. are. Okay. Which lead singer said, I would have hated to be born into the royal family. It's a cushy number compared to being a tramp, I suppose, but it has serious disadvantages. The last royal wedding we watched in San Francisco, but Andrew and Fergie are a really gruesome couple. He's really obnoxious and she's really ugly. Which lead singer of an alternative band said that? Pete Wiley. Uh... Oh, I hate these games. What you just? No, no you don't. You you love you love them. Uh, Robert Smith. Robert Smith. <laughs> oh, 
What about that? Which alternative band said, I really do suspect that the Queen is retarded, honestly, because I don't ever remember seeing the Queen talking or having a conversation. She doesn't seem to have any insight to anything. Oh, the Jesus and Mary chain. It's hard to tell because it's all they're all in your voice. So, uh, like, I just think I'll need him. The Jesus and Mary <laughs> chain. Taylor's cheating. Taylor has Taylor has like gone to his yeah. cupboard and looked this up furtively. Yeah, the cupboard in my mind. <laughs> it's dark. Which lead singer of a rock band said, "Well, one doesn't like to put down the royal family, but I'm sure Andy could have done better than that." It'll be interesting to see if Fergie can get the measurements down in time for the wedding. Otherwise, there isn't going to be much room for Andy at the altar. Oh, fuck that. Fuck whoever that is. Fuck off. Whoever, if, the, if it's somebody whose music I like, I officially no longer like their music. Uh, Lemme. Oh, Lemme. Oh, right. Yeah, it's charming then, isn't it? It's yeah. just, you know, he's just being ribald. <laughs> okay. Uh, one last one. One last one. I'm fanatically in favour of the royal family for the prestige they bring the country and the amount they do for the country. People who want to get rid of the royal family should be shot, traitorous scum. (laughs) Morrissey. Uh, Gary Newman. Gary Newman said that. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking hell. Uh, Some things just stick in your mind. So, in the news this week, a Soviet passenger liner sinks when it collides with a carrier ship, the Tory cabinet backed Thatcher on no sanctions on South Africa, while protesters in Edinburgh lob eggs and tomatoes at her, Boy George is fined £250 for possession of heroin, while Steve Strange is fined £500 for nicking a chequebook and a cash card at a party. Sebastian Coe was pulled out of the Commonwealth Games in Manchester, but the big news this week is that FC Hamburg have invited Samantha Fox to sing at half-time during their friendly with Liverpool in an attempt to quell hooliganism. Holy shit, we need... What an idea. It's like it's like, like that thing in the day-to-day come to life, isn't it? But they were having hardcore pornography on the big screens. <laughs> we need to find footage of this, not hardcore pornography, but Sam Fox. Well, we don't know if it happened or right. not. Right. Well, we should uh, we should investigate this. I mean, the thing—that's the thing, though. Yeah, it's like, we should. Um, but it'll it'll end up as a kind of apocalypse now scenario where you know you get the kind of go-go dancers yeah. and all these kind of sex-crazed yeah. um, marines just kind of clambering over each other and kicking each other in the head to get to the women. You know, it just yeah. doesn't sound. It's not the same principle as playing classical music in the bus station to stop you know, to stop the youth from from rioting. It's just not, I don't think it's going to work. On the cover of The Enemy this week is Jam and Lewis. On the cover of the latest smash hits, Hollywood Beyond. The number one LP is True Blue by Madonna. And over in America, the US number one is Sledgehammer by Peter Gabriel. And the number one LP is the soundtrack to Top Gun. So me dears, what were we doing in the summer of 86? Um... I probably did. I have guinea pigs at that time. Probably had guinea pigs. I don't know. <laughs> I was. I wasn't in the habit of stalking eight-year-old was, girls in a in another town was, then, Sarah. Sorry out, about that. Uh, with, times change. <laughs> I was. I was hanging out with with guinea pigs and being being happy to not be at school because school was rubbish. So 
Yeah. I think I was uh, just angry that I still had too much puppy fat to wear leather trousers. Oh, mate. Yeah, I was I was one of those people, you know, unique, a bit mm. different, you know. Just like everyone <laughs> just else. Just like everyone else. <laughs> I just I just got it out of the way early, that's all, you know. So yeah. I could have this sort of continue have a sense of superiority, but when I was like 19, I had a sense of superiority over the people who were going through that phase then, like you're supposed to, because I got it out of the way when I was a kid. Well, around about this time, I was waiting to start college again, but going to a different college, the one I wanted to go to. So I was I was well looking forward to that. But the, the big event around about this time was that I finally understood and got into hip hop. Uh, I had a mate who bunged me tapes. He was he got a job and I hadn't, so he was spunking all his money on vinyl every weekend, and he just taped stuff for me. And he, I asked him to do me a Billy Bragg compilation, and and he did. And on the other side, I, I looked at it. It's like, oh, Run DMC raising hell. Oh, yeah, not going to be interested in that. Um, got bored with Billy Bragg really quickly, and then just turned the tape over and uh, Peter Piper. The first track on it was like, oh fucking hell, I get this. And this is going to be what I'm going to listen to for the fucking rest of my life. It was so fucking good that I, I remember lying in bed listening to it. Even as the batteries were winding down, it still sounded fucking mint. It's it's a weird thing. I, I quite liked hip-hop as well, even though, I mean, I wasn't sort of snobby about that or anything. But it just, mm. it, it for some reason, it didn't seem quite as vital and important and of the moment to me as sort of, terrible bands ripping off the Velvet Underground. I don't know why. So what else was on telly today? Well, BBC One has been running the Commonwealth Games all afternoon, and then the 6 o'clock news and regional news in your area. BBC Two has broadcast the 1941 film None But The Lonely Heart, where Cary Grant pretends to be a cockney, followed by two and a half hours of racing from Goodwood, then Hyde, a repeat of fame, and then more Commonwealth Games coverage. ITV has screened The Sullivans, Scarecrow and Mrs. King, the Ray Allen game show Three Little Words, a repeat of Me and My Girl where Richard O'Sullivan plays a widow father, then the computer-based kids show The Game, Tales from Fat Tulip's Garden, The Moomins, Nature Trail, the finished drama series Under the Same Sky, Connections, The News at 5.45, Crossroads and of course is currently screening Emmerdale Farm. Channel 4 has put on the films Gangway and The Frozen North, then Dancing Days, the Brazilian disco soap opera of the late 70s, and then another film, Footlight Parade, before running Channel 4 News. Sarah, as is our want at this time, what the fuck it was Tales from Fat Tulip's Garden? (laughs) See, I knew you'd ask me this, am I? It's not Blue Tulip, Rose Reed, is it? That'd be fucking mint. I have no idea. I mean, obviously I'm familiar with the Moomins, as as we all are, but I I don't know what this was. I'm going to have to... uh... I'm gonna to have to find out because it sounds—it's a good band name, actually. You don't want to know about Blue Tulips Garden. You don't no. literally don't want to dig too deep. No. <laughs> All right, then, pop craze youngsters, it's time to go way back to late July of 1986. Always remember, we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget—they've been on top of the pops more than we have. Feed parade, the top of the pops. Your 
hosts for this episode are Mike Reed and Janice Long. We've already discussed Mike Reed in Chart Music 20 and at this stage of his career he's minding the late morning slot on Sundays at Radio 1 in between Peter Powell and Jimmy Savile's old record club. Although the latter isn't on this week as he's running a hill race at the Commonwealth Games. Good for him. And he's a few weeks away from presenting the final season of Saturday Superstore, the supermarket, and some might say happy shopper, swap shop. Sarah, Saturday Superstore or number 73? Oh, number 73 all the way, definitely. Why? Um, Because I, I have so few memories of number 73, but it seemed to be sort of more... More sort of properly anarchic instead of just, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I never liked Saturday Superstore. I just found it a bit weird and a bit forced, I think. Mm. And what do you think of Mike Reed at this time? Uh, he's quite oily. He's sort of, mm. he's too young to be that oily. Like he's really leaning into the oil. Do you know what I mean? Mm. There's no real creepiness, but there's a, there's a sort of nascent creepiness. It's just the sort of, I don't know. You get the feeling because he's he's sort of doing. He's very he's very bants, you know. Before bants was a thing, but also mm. in that in that way that you just think you have to humour him, even though he's not funny because he might turn nasty. Taylor, what's happened to Mike Reed since we uh, we last spoke about him in 1979? Well, it's seven and a half years on, and mm. he's still doing the same job. Um, mm. And despite that full head of raven hair, he's showing every hour of those seven and a half years. <laughs> he, and yet in another way, he hasn't changed at all. He's just caught up with himself. You know mm. what I mean? Uh, he's no longer trying to be the cool kid of Radio 1, which mm. is sort of progress of a sort. Uh, I hated Saturday Superstore. What I didn't yeah. like about it was that it was too high concept right they brought it in and it was like it's in a a shop so everything like when we do a competition we're going to call it like a giveaway or something Mm. or when we do this and so everything had to be supermarket themed and as always happens with those things uh after about like a month they just stopped doing half of it because it just got in the way and then it was really embarrassing just left by the wayside yeah it wasn't very aspirational was it for the kids watching (laughs) Oh, here's, here's, here's a new show, and it's set in the place that you're going to work at and fucking despise. Our second host, born in Liverpool in 1955 as Janice Chegwin, Janice Long spent two years as a cabin crew worker on Laker Airways, worked as a shop assistant and in telesales, and was also a contestant on the first ever episode of 321, before becoming an assistant at BBC Radio Merseyside in 1979 and eventually presented the local music show Street Life on Sunday nights. After moving to the weekday afternoon slot, she interviewed Paul Gambaccini, who was so impressed by her that he recommended her to his bosses at Radio 1. In late 1982, Radio 1's transmission time was expanded and the simulcast with Radio 2 were abolished and Long was drafted in alongside Mike Smith, Adrian John, Pat Sharp and Gary Davis. She started on the Saturday evening slot and was then promoted to the 7.30 to 10pm weekday slot where she still is on the evening this episode went out. She actually got through to the final stage in 3-2-1, you know. Yeah, 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 brainy woman. Her and her husband at the time, uh, that they, they rejected Dusty Bin, a holiday in Copenhagen, a St Bernard's dog and a year's supply of brandy, a speedboat 
and just missed out on the Vauxhall Chevette and they eventually won a silver tea service worth two grand. She she looked she looked really fucking dischuffed when Hang they on. won that. They were giving away a St. Bernard dog. Yeah, yes. this three, was, two, one. This was my question. What yeah, how does that work? Well, you were off of the dog and if you didn't want it they'd chuck it back in the kennel and give you a hundred quid. <laughs> well like they were gonna kill the dog and put him in dusty bin or anything. Well, I don't know. It was, it, you know, anything anything could happen on telly at that point, you know. But um, no, yeah. some Bernard, you know, you'd have to think really carefully before. Have you seen the size of them? They're like yeah, they're big fuckers, aren't they? Know, they're like they're like horses in dog costumes, but with a sort of Persian mm. Persian rug over them and brandy around their neck. Yeah, like, yeah, it's not going to end well, is it? But you couldn't actually get it. It's a dog, and it's a fuck loads of brandy. Yeah. So, what do we think about Janice Long then? If you don't count the disc girls who played the records in the background in the mid-60s episodes of Top of the Pops. This is the first time they've given the woman an opportunity to uh, to do this shit. Yeah, she was great. She was... It's a man's job though, isn't it? It's, you know, <sighs> standing the... there and introducing Show Waddy Waddy, that's, that's man's work, that is. Oh, it is, yeah. It's really it's a strenuous kind of, uh, yeah. And of course, it's really important that you have a man surrounded by women at all times. That's just oh, like, yeah. it's just, that's just nature, isn't it? No, Janice Long was, was great. She's really natural... She's really sort of. Mm. Um, she's an excellent counterpoint to whatever, whatever blooming bloke, whatever bloke was, whatever hundred weight of bloke she was on with, you know. And slightly, you can tell with with her and, and Mike Creed, you can tell that she sort of, you know, slightly. They they uh, they have kind of good chemistry, but it's mostly her just kind of dealing with him. I think. Yeah. And, and kind it's of good ru- chemistry, but it's not sexual chemistry, is it? No, it's like presenting. This is it. This chemistry. is no Frank Boff and Selena Scott routine. But she's not doing. Of course, she's not going to roll her eyes. But there's that slight widening of the eyes at the camera, like get a load of this guy face, you know. Which, mm. uh, yeah, no, she's 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 really great. <laughs> she's lovely to watch. She seems like such a nice person that yeah. you don't want to point out how kind of amateurish and vacuous she really is. But the fact is, that doesn't matter. Oh, no. He's having a Vacu- go at fucking Janice Long now. No, but the oh. point is, that doesn't matter because... Um, <sighs> The genuine niceness neutralises that and it goes a surprisingly long way because the point is that she's doing a job which consists in its entirety of being a human presence in between pop records. So it mostly seemed to attract people who were neither talented nor nice when in fact you only have to be one of those things. So if somebody comes on and they're genuinely nice and they seem like a genuinely warm, friendly person you sort of forget that what you're actually hearing is a load of froth. Well, mm. I do take issue with, with the whole vacuous thing in terms specifically of, of her or anyone else, because like the, the job, well, that's because, you know, that is the job. You're not going to be able to shoehorn in a sort of philosophical discourse, are you? I mean, you've only got a couple of seconds no. between, um, you know, Duran Duran and Phil Collins. So, you know, it's not really, mm. I think you're, you may be expecting a little, a little too much of people. Well, I'm not, I'm not expecting it, but I know what you mean. I mean, and also when you compare her to the uh, other female pop presenters of the time, like Muriel Gray and uh, Paula Yates, you know, she's she's a lot she's a lot more avuncular. Is she kind of like knows a job and she does it. Hang on, is that so? Avuncular doesn't that pertain to? Isn't isn't that of an uncle? Is there an auntie? Going to say she's avuncular. Yeah, she's yeah. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly what she is. I mean, the the one thing I lo- I liked about Janice Long is that I, I, I like the fact that she presented everything with an even tone. 
she wasn't like John Peel. She wasn't disparaging or anything like that. But, you know, you always knew what she liked and what she didn't like. I mean, particularly the latter, because yeah. she always reacted like a man watching her sons play football. You know, there'd, there'd either be a little bit of a clenched fist or a thumbs up. Almost as if you were saying, oh, come on, our Reco and the bunny men. <laughs> <laughs> credits kick in and dissolves into a vortex, we can hear the disembodied voice of Mike Reed as he introduces Fight for Ourselves by Spandau Ballet. Formed in London as The Cut in 1976, and then The Makers a few months later, and then The Gentre in 1978, Spandau Ballet finally settled on a name where their mate Robert Elms saw some graffiti on the wall of a nightclub bog in Berlin. After becoming early adopters of the Blitz Kids stroke new romantic scene, they changed from being 60s R&B copyists to having a go on them synths everyone was going on about and got involved in a multi-label bidding war and eventually released their debut single to cut a long story short, which soared up to number five in December of 1980. By the end of 1984, they'd racked up eight top ten hits, including True, which spent four weeks at number one in the spring of 1983, which caused Chrysalis to release a greatest hits LP against the band's wishes in late 1985. This led to them suing the label, leaving the label, and spending 18 months not releasing anything, and forcing some of the band to pursue alternative careers, which we'll get onto in a moment. In 1986, they signed with CBS, and this is their comeback single, the follow-up to Round and Round, which got to number 18 in January of 1985, and it's jumped 15 places this week. But before we go any further, some of the more observant pop-crazed youngsters may have noticed that I have a slight Nottingham accent. So, Sarah. Hello. Come and sit under the learning tree. <laughs> and let me teach you the Nottingham version of The Rain in Spain. Ooh. Right. Who's singing this song? Uh, Tony Hadley. And what band is he in? Spandau Ballet. So you mean Tony Adler out of Spandau Ballet. <laughs> Tony, Adler, Tony Adler out of Spandau Ballet. Not bad. Taylor. Uh, See, to, to Tone, West Midlanders, you people sound like Yorkshire anyway. Atta Spandau Ballet. Tony Adler, Atta Spandau Ballet. No, no, Spandau. It's wrong, isn't it? Spandau. Spandau. Yeah. Spandau. I can't. Ballet. I've been told this. I've, I've mates have been to drama school, right? And the, the, their voice teachers have said, don't try doing a Nottingham accent in anything because you'll always fuck it up. Because it's a mixture of north and south, you see. You, you know, we say we say up, book and cup like northerners, but we also say uh, art and uh, dan tan, like, a bit like southerners do. It's 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 a very complicated oh, accent. But then you, then you mix in the Leicester R, 
because it's not Leicester, it's Leicester. Oh, yeah. The the phrase for that is, Tanya and her non went on Trisha for a lie detector. <laughs> so anyway, Spandau Ballet. Um, it's always the way into, you know, when we do chart music, you get, you get one band with a long career and you're just gagging to get stuck into them. And the, uh, and the, and the first time you catch them is always at the tail end of their career. Because this is kind of like the, the, the beginning of the slow descent for Spandau Ballet, isn't it? Yeah, this is the point where, by rights, they should have lost two original members, mm. one of whom died. Sarah, Spandau Ballet, what did they mean to you? Uh, very little, actually. I mean, I wasn't, you know, obviously yeah. being, being that young, I hadn't really developed a lot of allegiances at this point. You know, you're still quite, um, you just sort of hoover up everything at that age. But, um, you know, I mm. like I like Duran Duran. You know, they were definitely, if I was going to, if you'd asked me, you know, if if... if for some weird reason, you'd stuck a microphone in my face at that point and forced me to. Chip. I would have gone, well, yeah, I like Duran Duran. I don't really know. I don't really know who Spandau Ballet are. Um, yeah, I I always felt. Um, I probably even at the time, I always felt, even though you know all adults are kind of you know you you sort of have a basic level of respect for all of them just for getting so big and being able to like mm. you know being able to go to bed whenever they want and stuff. They're all gods to you. But he was yeah. such a boob. Poor old, poor Tony is such a boob. Tony Adler. Yeah, it's just this. Had to spend our ballet. He was a bit of a fanner. <laughs> anyway, um, no, I, I kind of now I sort of there's a certain vulnerability about you know because they fired him a couple of years ago, didn't they? And it was like, oh mate, mm. what's he gonna what's he gonna do now? I mean, he's been you know, the, but the sort of the this incredible, he's this sort of walking edifice of, of hubris and you know he's always mm. has been and also I, I've realised in watching this performance is that I think uh, you can you know what, what's Tony Hadley's legacy going to be and, and I guess at least part of it is going to be the Hadley fist which is you know mm. when you clap that's a obviously this was there's a lot of this about in the 80s but just the kind of the the heartfelt kind of clench and of course it's a song about fighting as well so that's like gives it extra oomph but you know this predates mm. like the Henman fist of of sports ball. <laughs> but I, you, I, I do. You feel I, I have a certain respect for him just because he was so arrogant over kind of so, you know, so little. Although you know he could. It's not like he couldn't sing. He just kind of, mm. you know, did it in in uh, in in such a way that made it impossible for you to like him. Yeah, I think his voice suited the kind of like early 80s new romantic phase of their career and, and he's, he's been asked to be a bit more soulful here and he and he kind of carried it off with true it's got to be said and and gold but with this one not not so much that whole robert elms white soul and dignity bit never really appealed to me and i can mm. recognize it as a kind of genuine working class lower middle class london movement yeah um sort of like mod with a less appealing aesthetic but ultimately yeah, any way of living which could have Tony Hadley as a figurehead must be a right load of shit. Mm. Yeah, just oozing that city boy wine bar machismo. You know what I mean? Like a second division footballer. He's. Uh, I used to see him out jogging. Right when I used to live up by Crouch End. Well, all game. of them. No, just Tony Hadley. Yeah, he used to jog on the old railway line around Crouch End. Did he? And. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was him because even sweating in a tracksuit next to some hawthorn trees, he was instantly dislikable presence. Um, and all his worst traits are 
right here. The it's, yeah, that the clenched fist by the shoulder, which he would then bring down as though flushing an old-fashioned lavatory. <laughs> um, and he, that was his one stage move. That and the pseudo-dramatic turns of the head. Mm. Um, and that horrible, overbearing voice, like coming through those massive flared horse nostrils, just <laughs> like puffed up and history. He stinks. He's unlovable in every conceivable way. Uh and also I feel for Steve Norman as well, mm. being such a plonker and playing an instrument that only comes in occasionally. So the rest of the time he just has to stand there contemplating the injustice of his wealth and success, which I imagine is what he was probably doing. Um, and I sort of feel for Gary Kemp, who always seemed like quite a nice bloke and is not a completely useless songwriter. No. I'm not a fan of the Spandau sound. Um it's a bit too sort of post-Live Aid changed up here. Um, and I wasn't wasn't really into the new romantic stuff either. But he could always write a tune, like somebody else who's coming up later. Whatever else was going wrong, he could always force out a nice melody. Mm. The problem here being that it runs out before the end of the verse. So mm. there's nothing left for the chorus, which is just a sort of grunt uh, at this message. Everybody, we've got to fight for ourselves. As though... In 1986, people were taking life tips from Spandau Ballet. The, you know, oh, there's a yeah, lot. He's right. There's a lot of this going on. Isn't there? There's because uh, we got into this with Johnny hates jazz last time I was I was on. Where there's a mm. lot of a lot of blokes very uh, very bravely kind of going on about scrapping <laughs> when they've clearly you know they they've never thrown a punch in their entire lives. Like it's it's. You know, you can imagine them getting slightly leery after a few too many gin and tonics, you know, and then just running away. I don't think the Kemp brothers were, they were the craze, remember? Oh, yeah, no, I'm not talking about the Kemp brothers, but I mean, but but Tony, Tony would be, would be no use at all. He would start something and then leave you to deal with it. I don't know. He's a big bloke. Yeah. I mean, he's a lot bigger uh, than than the Kemp. A lot bigger than Gary Kemp, who in this clip is wearing a big sloppy red hat like a Tetley Tea Man, <laughs> like a but bright red, like a Tetley Tea Man who's just strolled through an abattoir. Um, I might as well just point out now that Gary Kemp is a friend of chart music. Hi, Gary. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. Uh, or at least he was until <laughs> until two minutes ago. Oh, we only laughed at his hat. Come yeah. on, yeah. Yeah, he's, he, I would imagine if you got Gary Kemp in here now and showed him this clip, I imagine he would laugh at his dad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I think I did quite well there without knowing that Gary Kemp might be listening yeah. to this. I, I did quite well at walking the line between uh, honesty and decency. Yeah, the thing, the, the, this, this song doesn't actually have a chorus, mm. but um, to be fair, there are so many songs that don't actually have a chorus. It's just a kind of something happens. And you go, oh, yeah. this this is, you know, and your brain goes, that is the chorus. And another part of your brain goes, yeah. yes, it is. And then another part of your brain goes, hang on. I don't, I, I don't feel mm. the kind of satisfaction that I should feel at this point. And then it's, and then it's over and you're on to something else. But um, they've got some very good, the, the, the one thing that uh, elevates this slightly is um, really excellent uh, female backing singers, like proper, they've got, P, they've got fucking mm. PVC dresses on, which um, I, yes. which, so they're going to be quite uncomfortable, but they look amazing. Um, they sound great. They're actually there's some good harmonies going on. That's the best I can say about this. But of course, the thing is, Spandau Ballet. They, they must be looking around the pop wasteland of 1986 as being, you know, they've been kind of like one of the big 
for want of a better word, boy bands uh, uh, of the time. And they must be looking around at Johnny Hates Jazz and and uh, uh, Curiosity Killed the Cat and all these new ones and thinking, oh, we can have these fuckers. <laughs> They're no threat to us. You know, in the pre-Bross times, of course. Yeah, who? I mean, nobody could have predicted that, that Bross would come along and just and, and lay waste to, uh, you know, lay <sighs> about them and hear the charts driven before them and hear the lamentations of their women and all that shit. Mm. Oh yeah. Also, there's a there's we we haven't mentioned the the massive saxophone solo. I mean, when was the of last course, time? Yeah. I wonder if this is one of the last ones because the saxophone solo was endangered at this point. I think. Yes. Do you do you think? And this yeah. is like, and now it's a saxophone solo. And yeah, that's a good point, isn't yeah. it? I would like to see some data on this. It's kind of moving yeah. out from out of the cocktail bar and into the warehouse, isn't it? Also, just to. Uh, sort of. ingratiate myself with our audience so well, I've only found out yesterday you know what Gary Kemp's doing now he's joined a band with Pink Floyd drummer Nick Mason oh really who are, yeah who are playing um, and Guy Pratt the session bassist who mm. uh, was in Pink Floyd for a bit after Roger Waters left um, and they're going out playing the early Pink Floyd stuff like the crazy uh, sort of druggy improv shit and hell um, now of all the rock guitarists you would not have put money on to do that mm. Gary is right up there and I, I do have to salute that I'm, so. I'm enjoying this I wonder if this is like a new era of sort of band you know musical chairs because of course we've got um, him from Crowded Houses now in Fleetwood Mac which you know right would have, I'll be yeah. interested there'll be I'm sure there'll be a, there'll be a, an entertaining Guardian bit about this written by someone who isn't me um, but you know uh it's it's quite it's quite exciting really. And Luke Goss joined White House. <laughs> no, 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 he didn't really. I mean Spandau they they are back after a long layoff, but you know a bit like Duran Duran was, but instead of, you know, splintering into groups or, you know, poncing about on yachts or underneath yachts, as uh, in the case of Simon Le Bon, you know, they've done something really constructive, haven't they? Or at least two of them. Taylor. Yeah. So around 1985, um, Melchester Rovers had a new chairman, yeah. um, which was Jeff Boycott, yes. a cricketer, yeah. who you would expect to be, if nothing else, uh, a steady hand on the tiller. Yeah, He stood aside as that insufferable prig, Roy Race, suddenly lost his mind and adopted a transfer policy which could politely be described as unconventional. Um, <laughs> so first he signed Bob Wilson, ex of <laughs> Arsenal and Scotland, as his new goalkeeper, persuading him to revive his career at the age of 44, some Fuck 11 God. years after he'd retired. Then followed that and up... And younger than us. Yes. And then, then followed that up with a swoop for Emlyn Hughes, team captain yes. on a question of sport. Um, and in case the fans were worried about how the team was going to fare with <laughs> middle-aged men in key yeah. positions... Uh, Roy sought to reassure them by making two further signings, Martin Kemp and Steve Norman of Spandau Ballet, who yes. he'd seen playing in a celebrity game. Now, Against against a load of DJs. Was it? I've forgotten the details. Yeah, sadly they were generic DJs. It wasn't, it wasn't like Steve Norman was clogging Dave Lee Travis or something like that, which would have been fucking so sweet. <laughs> He's basically seen them playing this charity, well, this charity match against the DJs. And uh, he, he leaves 
about 10 minutes before the end of the game or something and he hangs around the dressing room and uh, he sees them and he says, Steve, Martin, can I have a quick word, lads? And Steve Norman says, hey, it's old racer. And Roy says, not so much of the old. What a cheeky cut. And uh, Martin Kemp says, come along for a bit of talent spotting, eh, Roy? And Roy says, true. You two lads could be worth your weight in gold. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. And then he he could have said, look, to cut a long story short, (laughs) why don't you come and play for us? But he didn't. So Kemp went straight into the side, where while Norman... Uh, who was a flashy right winger had to undergo some intensive fitness training before he could like like his lead singer. Uh, yeah, yeah. Before he could replace Rob Richards in the first team, but it did. It, it, it did cause problems, though, didn't it? I mean, um, you, you know, it, it, it did lead to lots of um, screaming girls going to uh, Mel Park. Yeah, referred to in the in the strip as rock fans, uh, yes. which tells you something about the cultural awareness of the golf sweated. Beard at King's Reach there. And they had massive banners as well, didn't they? Re- I mean, really massive, yeah. sort of like Aussie Rules football banners that yeah. just said Spandau Ballet. <laughs> just practically a, a TIFO, just as yeah. Martin. Yeah. But uh, in the end, Roy's hunch paid off because this preposterous circus team actually went on to win the League Cup in the 1985-86 season, which nobody could have predicted. No, Uh, not in a million years. At which point, Bob, Emlyn, Martin and Steve were rewarded by not having their contracts renewed for the following (laughs) season, which seems a bit harsh, all things considered. But it turned out for the best because it allowed the Spandau boys to rejoin their bandmates in time for the release of Fight for Ourselves, uh, the the chorus of which may well have been influenced by some of what they'd heard from the terraces at Mel Park. Um, yeah. And it also meant they didn't go on Melchester Rovers' summer tour of fictional Middle Eastern countries. <laughs> oh, thank um, God for that. During which they were kidnapped, rescued by the SAS... <laughs> and then on the way to the airport, um, collided with a terrorist uh, in a in a hurry to get to his detonation, whose car bomb exploded, <laughs> killing eight members of the squad. Now, oh, man. considering that happened little more than a month before this Top of the Pops appearance, I think Steve and Martin's cheery smiles seem a bit disrespectful <laughs> to be yeah. perfect. With well, their young teammates like Jimmy Slade, uh, Kenny <sighs> Logan, and uh, oh, Kenny Vic Super Brat Guthrie. Uh, oh, not the Super Brat. Yeah, barely cold, barely cold pop stars. All of them are cunts. <laughs> but the funny thing is this all happened during the period when there was no football on yeah. English TV because of the dispute between the clubs and the broadcaster yeah. so even if it actually happened there'd be no visual record I know. Of it. so it would be as mythical as the early English career of Frank McAvenny or that time when Peter Davenport came in a hyena's face in stoppage time <laughs> against Derby at the old baseball ground so the following week, Fight for Ourselves stayed at number 15 and got no higher. The follow-up 
through the barricades, got to number six in November of this year, but they would never trouble the top 30 again and they split up for the first time in 1990. They reformed in 2010, but last year Tony Adler announced that for reasons beyond his control, he was no longer a member of Spandau Ballet. Spandau Ballet there. Tony Hadley is Janice's mum's all-time favourite singer. Now, tonight, you've come as a wing half, and I've come as a Picasso painting. Thanks. Uh, on tonight's show, we've got Five Star, we've got Stan Ridgeway, we've got a new number one, but it is my pleasure to introduce that Jesus and Mary James! Long, in a hoopy blue and pink jumper dress with pockets, is described as a rugby wing half by Mike Reed, who claims to look like a Picasso painting. Fucking hell, not even the horrors of the Spanish Civil War could depict Mike Reed. He actually looks like Colin Hunt at the office Hawaiian night at the local bowling alley. After some spoiler alerts, Janice is delighted to introduce a video of the next band, the Jesus and Mary Chain and some candy talking. Formed in East Kilbride in 1983 as the Poppy Seeds and then Death of Joe, the Jesus and Mary Chain were essentially the brothers Reed, Jim and William, whose dad bought them a porter studio with his redundancy money. After relocating to London in 1984, they eventually signed to Creation Records and immediately became a fixture on the indie charts, developing a reputation of playing gigs where people went mental and lobbed shit about. They signed to Blanco e Negro Records earlier this year and started knocking on the door of the top 40, and this single, about bloody drugs, has put them over the top. It's a follow-up to Just Like Honey, which got to number 45 in November of 1985, and it's up this week from number 20 to number 13. Oh, Taylor, I bet you were shaking your little fist with glee seeing this on top of the pulse, weren't Yeah, it's, it seemed important. Um, yeah. I mean, I loved them. I, somehow I thought they were more than a pretty good Velvet Underground-type indie band with an admirably bold approach to record production. Right, to to my adolescent self, this was the sound of sex and drugs and other stuff I'd not experienced. Uh, and a kind of purity about pop music, like a weird kind of puritanism about pop music, mm. which which now strikes me as very restrictive and a little bit boring. I mean, I, even now I could sort of listen to the Jesus and Mary Chain all day, even though I never do. Because I do, you know, I quite like them and because they're very undemanding listening. But they're sort of responsible for starting that pure retro alternative record collection rock orthodoxy, which in the end is what indie music became. Like not not musically responsible because the sound you hear here with the crushing layers of treated electric guitar mostly went on to influence quite good stuff like My Bloody Valentine. Um, and it also uh, provided indirectly the main appeal of the early Oasis records. 
but mm. more responsible in terms of attitude. Like prior to this, it was seen as a bit embarrassing if you were an indie type group and you weren't doing anything original or you seemed a, in hock to the past, you know. And then over time, that became pretty much the defining feature of the genre. And this is where that began. Um, it's just that on the early records, like You Trip Me Up, um, which is a phenomenal record, the Jesus and Mary Jane's direct influences included, you know, I Heard Her Call My Name and Heroin, the song and the drug. Mm. And when you let that kind of thing into your music, it creates enough sonic interest in itself to cancel out the heritage thing. Um, yeah. But this is the first single without fee, but they, were re they really wanted a hit. So they started yeah. making music without feedback on it. And hey, presto, they got a hit. Um, mm. Which bizarrely, this has already come up twice for discussion on this podcast, hasn't it? Yes. Once because Mike <laughs> yes, Smith yeah. worked out what it was about. Like, not that they yes. were trying to hide it, considering mm. the video looks like a fucking heroin screws you up advert. Um, yes. <laughs> and once because the chorus is stolen almost note for note from Living Next Door to Alice by Smokey. Yes, it is. Jesus. I mean, they were a bit leery at the time, weren't they? Mm. You know, I've, I've been watching a few of their interviews and, you know, they're even slagging off Joy Division, which is a bit, you know, a bit sacrilegious. Yeah, it's weird because they're actually sort of, you know, quite introspective and meek. I mean, I interviewed them once and it was, you know, you, you had oh, yeah. to turn the recording volume up to 10, you know what I mean? It was like, yeah. it was like that. I think their early image as hooligans was a little bit... Uh, a little bit contrived, to say the least. Well, he's yeah, he's he's just. Um, mm -hmm. I've seen him. Uh, I've seen Jim Reed interview, and he's like, I'm just, I'm incredibly shy. And then it's like that. That's there's that thing, isn't there? There's that kind of combustible mm. thing when someone who is that that shy and reserved drinks a lot, and then it's just like, and then you know, and then bad stuff happens. You know? Yeah. Because uh, yeah. You, you, yeah, you just kind of go through a sort of wormhole into a completely different character. And I think that's probably what, you know, mm. that's what all this kind of nihilistic fuck everyone thing was about. It's just a kind of, you know, it's a sort of chemical imbalance, really. Um, I mean, but by this time, they were, they were playing like 20 minute long gigs and a lot of the violence didn't come from them. It came from the audience who were fucked off. That is this band who have been hyped to the fucking skies and they're only on for a bit and they're turning the back on the audience yeah. and, and they're fucking off. And so, oh, let's throw loads it's of shit kind of, about on, on a certain level that's reasonable I suppose <laughs> mm. you want to get your money's worth and if you don't then you know you're gonna you're gonna throw you're gonna throw a thing we've 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 all done it yeah I mean, they were one of the, the first bands to be called the new sex pistols what an odd thing what, an, what a strange category to end up in uh, and what what a strange thing to want as well but I suppose we're that far away removed by this time that you know if you're not into chart music, you do want something that's just going to, you know, go mental. And uh, it's, it's, it, it never happens. It can, you, it can never be the same again. No, you again, can't go can home you? again, you know. I mean, this is the thing. I, 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 I do remember being vaguely aware of that. It's weird because, I, you know, I would watch Top of the Pops at, at this age, but there were definitely, uh, there was almost like the dark charts, which was the stuff that I just didn't have the processing power for yet, and they would fall into that kind of shadow. Yeah. Um, you know, I just wouldn't be able. Even though you know, listening to it now, it's like, well, it's a sort of, it's like a Shangri-La's song with a, a lot of, with this really delicious sort of dissonance between yes. this kind of very light, sweet pop and this kind of slight contained 
menace of, of the guitar sound. And it's like, that's perfectly accessible, but there are just some things that I wasn't ready for yet, and this is definitely one of them. Also, I do remember thinking that the name was a bit naughty. I mean, I went to, I only went to, you know, I went to like a C of E school, so it mm. wasn't like a, you know, you shouldn't be saying this. But there was, de- I don't know where I got this idea, but I was like, that seems controversial. I remember hearing so much about them because I was still, you know, reading the music press. And uh, I saw them on Whistle Test uh, a few months previous to this, I think. And they were just standing there with a big Juffed haircuts. And uh, at the end, one of them knocks a mic stand over and it just thuds. And it's like, oh, that's it then, is it? And because the other the other band who was supposed to be the new Sex Pistols in in this year were Zig Zig Sputnik. <laughs> Bless but they were always a good laugh, I thought. Yeah, well, the, the the Mary Chain had that sort of Noel Gallagher type conviction that they were genius songwriters. Yes. Um, when really all their songs are the same four notes arranged around the same four chords with a choice mm. of two drum beats. Now, there's nothing wrong with that because it takes a certain talent to keep coming up with new songs within such extreme limits. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with writing an album of songs that all go do 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 do, you know, with the tune of Three Blind Mice over it and mm. a bit that goes he 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 he. I mean, it can be really fantastic. And their first album is pretty fantastic, but yeah. just, you know, don't then come on like you've just written The Hissing of Summer Lords and followed <laughs> it up with Hegira, you know. It's not, it's not a question of which is superior. It's just, you know, don't make yourself look too much of a tit. Um, and I does you know I sound like I'm moaning really because I <laughs> heaven forbid but I mean it's just looking back the blankness of the aesthetic means you get very little back like all those videos and photos that are just them moping mm. <laughs> they're out moping yeah. um the camera shaking to show that they're on drugs you know and yeah. once you've outgrown your bedroom posing there's not a lot to connect with yeah. you know I mean obviously top of the pops isn't going to risk having them in the studio so uh you know we get to see the video which is basically them in in a blue wash with the occasional orange flash and uh i noticed particular emphasis on the band actually playing their instruments like a proper group and also having girlfriends like a proper group yeah at the end it's like it's a it's an unusual kind of happy ending because it's suddenly that there's sunlight um i really i like this yeah. I, I, it's it's a nice video actually there's a sort of yeah there is the kind of juddering yeah um and yeah what what is now called in some corners of the internet bisexual lighting which is like blue on one side pink on the other this is apparently right. bisexual lighting which is hilarious um right. but yeah and then suddenly uh there's kind of there's there's all the moodiness and then there's some sunlight and they're in a field with girls yeah. And having a nice time. And it's like, oh, aren't they? Look, they're having yeah. a day out. It's lovely. Yeah. It is funny to think that at the time there was this perception that, you know, the TV was scared of the Jesus of Mary, or it was yeah. that there was something threatening about this music. Whereas, really, to the people who do Top of the Pops, that this would have been indistinguishable from She Sells Sanctuary, you know, yeah. or something by The Cure. You know, it's like student bands, isn't it? It's a bunch yeah. of geezers in black looking miserable, yeah. you know. Um, and quite right too, because you know, Jason Mary Shane, just a bunch of nice lads who could yeah. do all their washing in one load. <laughs> <laughs> they were possibly the first kind of like band of their type who wanted to be massive. Yeah, which was not the not the done thing at the time, was it? And I listen. I, I you know, I actually gave them a bit of a listen 
uh, which is something I've never done before. And I, in some of the songs, I do detect the Stone Roses. I was going to say that, actually. I was just thinking, yeah, I was lamenting, I was having a little lament to myself that the Stone Roses have ended up being like the uh, the kind of emotional emetic for blokes who can't otherwise feel feelings band. Mm. And, you know, it, it. I think in the universe where the Jesus and Mary chain are that band, I think things are slightly better. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, soon after this episode, Mike Smith, who was currently the Radio 1 Breakfast DJ, realised that the band weren't singing about toughies and convinced his bosses to ban it. The following week, Some Candy Talking dropped down to number 20 and was out of the charts two weeks later. You don't fuck with Mike Smith, do you? The follow-up, April Skies, got to number 8 in May of 1987, which led to a series of diminishing returns for the rest of the 80s. They scored a number 10 hit in February of 1992 with Reverence, however, and had four more top 40 hits before splitting up in 1998. Excellent. Jesus and Mary Chain and some candy talking. I'm a great fan of theirs. I'm glad that they've actually made it to the top 40 at last. A band who always seem to be in the top 40, they never seem to go away. Here's Five Star, up to number 10 this week, and find the time. surrounded by loads of women who look massively grateful that Jimmy Savile and DLT don't do this sort of thing anymore. <laughs> Why isn't she surrounded by loads of young lads and like copping a handful of them, eh, Sarah? That's not right, is it? Yeah, that's a good question. That's what true equality actually means, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Especially yeah. as there's a, a sort of 13-year-old girl there who's actually dressed as Ginger Lynn. Um, which, you know, that's fine. It was the style at the time, but you're just so mm. grateful that it's Janice Long standing there. You know what I mean? It just yeah. makes it seem just so much healthier. <laughs> <laughs> and she points out that the following group are on top of the pops all the time. Fucking hell, that's, that's as near as a diss you're gonna, as you're going to get off Janice Long, isn't it? Because she then follows that up by saying, they never seem to go away, which is, yeah. you know... <laughs> Yeah. Possibly closer to a diss. Possibly what I'm not sure if that would qualify as shade, but I think that might be shade. The band are five star and the song is Find the Time. Spawned in London and Romford by Buster and Dolores Pearson in the 60s, Five Star were a two-brother, three-sister group who formed in 1983 and were managed by their dad, who was a touring guitarist for Wilson Pickett, Otis Redding, Jimmy Cliff and Desmond Decker. They immediately landed a record deal, uh, which wasn't too hard because it was on their dad's label, Tent, and although their debut single flopped, they were spotted by RCA and signed up. 
They first entered the charts in the spring of 1985 with All Fall Down, which got to number 15 in May of that year, and they finished 1985 with three top 40 singles. This is the follow-up to Can't Wait Another Minute, which got to number 7 in May of this year, is the second single from the LP Silk and Steel, has been produced by Richard Burgess of Landscape, and it's up this week from number 25 to number 10. Oh, and they're also in the latest edition of Smash Hits, where they arse about in the family house, and Doris has made a five-star outfit for her new cat. Isn't that nice? (laughs) How lovely. Why can't the Jesus and Mary Chain do that instead of messing about with drugs? (laughs) So, Five Star, this is this is right in your wheelhouse, isn't it, Sarah? Yes, it is. Um, Silk and Steel was actually the first album I ever owned. I got it for Christmas. Good Lord, I got it, fancy that. I got it for, um, I got it for Christmas uh, this this year. Um, I don't know if I still have it. I need to. It'll be at my mum's somewhere if it is. But uh, What was it I about Five Star? It was really brilliant pop songs, really. It was really kind of laser cut, uh, you know silken gorgeous hooks and you know yeah that was you know that always that always floats my boat and I will you know I'll um I feel like I say this every time I come on here but I'll still listen I'll still listen to this now I've got a five-star playlist which is quite near the top of my you know I don't have to scroll down too far on my Spotify to find it you know because Mm. the thing is that you can see the kind of cynicism in in what they were going for and what their what their um um kind of out of central casting domineering manager dad was going for and they obviously weren't quite up to it in the way that you know they weren't up to you can see like how tired they are this is a really really lackluster performance i'm afraid so the costumes are really well the outfits they're wearing they're they're, they're essentially white sequiny uh jerkins with red trim uh a red five on one tit a red star on the other tit uh Five stars on the back and one black glove. Mm. Wonder, um, wonder where they got that. Yeah, from. it's all very. That's the thing is, it's like do not, you know, you cannot possibly expect. I'm sure. I mean, I don't know how much of a tyrant he was, but I'm sure he was nowhere near the tyrant that Joe Jackson was. Um, you know, and it's like that's mm. not something that you really want to aim for. And you, you know, I think they didn't. They weren't really allowed to sort of find their own thing. They were just put into this. It was this very sort of. I don't know. You know, like you get Wix and Squarespace and stuff. They were like the Wix mm. kind of website in a box version of of you know yeah. the Jacksons. Um, but that doesn't mean that they didn't that they weren't really great. They had really great songs. You can see like how tired they are. There's this kind of glorified aerobic aerobics yeah. choreography, and there's a kind of kicky leg spin around a bit, clenchy fist, Hadley fist. Um, you know, a frog hop repeat you know it's not very good but she is but so denise basically did you know did everything she was like the, she was really the beyonce of five star and sadly wasn't it's a real shame i wonder what she could have done if they just let her go solo because none of the others needed to be it was just kind of a sorry sorry the others but i think they were you know especially you can see that the blokes are the blokes aren't very good so they put them right at the back and you know and the other girls are you know they're all right but it's like she was she she carried the whole thing and she's got really good, you know, she's got the sort of Janet Jackson wrinkly nose thing going on and the sort mm. of, and the, she's got the most amazing teeth. She's got like properly pearlescent, like American teeth that obviously cost a lot of money. Mm. Um, but yeah, she, this is, you know, this isn't, I don't think this is their best song, but they've got those like, they had like 15 top 10 hits or something. They had, you know, a string of something like that. And they're yeah. all really, really good. And they all still stand mm. up now. So yeah, I would have been, I would have been dead excited by this, except, um, 
just possibly a bit disappointed by the listless dancing. Like when you see a routine like that, you've got to believe that someone's going to do themselves an injury just yeah, through shit. Set on fire or something. Uh, yeah. That you know that like the snappiness. You like you've got to snap every elbow. You know, and you've got to believe yeah. that someone's going to dislocate something at some point because they really mean it. Yeah. You know. Of course, Taylor. Me and you were a different age group, so uh, uh, I've only got two words down here: shaking Shalimar. <laughs> At the time, they were my least favourite group. Them and mm. Dire Straits, they were the two acts oh. I was convinced were perpetrating a con on the public, uh, that they were mm. objectively worthless and preemptively counter-revolutionary and somehow <laughs> they had to be stopped before everything was ruined. And, of course, now <laughs> it's, it's impossible to see what I was so bothered about because... At worst, this is a bland Michael Jackson takeoff, and at mm. best, it's a quite impressive bit of robo-pop, which is sort mm. of arresting and vaporous and quite futuristic in, in a conservative way. I mean, like Janice doesn't like it because it says nothing to her about her life, you know. Yes. And for indie fans, <laughs> that's all that matters on earth. But yeah. there is a lot of, or there are a lot of good things about this track. Even though it's not that memorable and it, maybe it's not really a single and it sounds a bit wheezy and British, but I really like the way the chorus sounds like total silence. And uh, <laughs> yeah, there's something a bit unnerving about it, but not enough. That It's a terrible shame that a little more of the desperate strangeness of this group didn't come across in mm. the actual music. Like yeah. any group with more than two members of the same family in it is intrinsically creepy. But they are horrific. The, the sheer darkness and uncanny otherworldliness about these poor kids, like used as an experiment by their dad, like a human ant farm. So like when <laughs> listen to Five Star, all I can hear is the sound of muffled tears behind a wedged-shut bedroom door. It, <laughs> but, you know, and when... I'm just surprised that when one of them got arrested in a public toilet, uh, Labrooks didn't go bust, because I would have put a <laughs> lot of money on that. And, of course, in 1986, I would have considered all this to be a negative, whereas now I think it's mm. very much a positive. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, despite the fact of how silly they look. I mean, because the, the costumes were designed by uh, poor Stedman, weren't they? And it's mm. it is sort of hilarious, the creepy way... They keep it in the family like any other chart act would have got in a, a designer. Whereas Five Star have mm. to keep to this insular plan like Stedman. You have a, an interesting mm. clothes design. Um, you can do the costumes, which means they look like yeah. this. They look like uh, some kids dressed up as Five Star for a primary school end of term <laughs> concert. Like they made the costumes out of toilet rolls and felt offcuts. Yeah. I mean, of course, the, the the black music that was dominating the charts at this in this year was it's proper soft lad music, isn't it? Yeah, it's the kind of thing the Huxtable kids would be into. <laughs> you know, their 1986 tour was sponsored by Crunchy, the chocolate bar. Oh god! And yes, then their 1987 shit. tour was sponsored by Ultra Bright toothpaste. Yeah. Which is quite poignant in a way. <laughs> it's quite grimly symbolic. It's like their 1988 tour should have been sponsored by Sterodent <laughs> or, yeah. or Boop. Yeah, that, that's the circle of life right there, isn't it? Surely we can't leave Five Star 
without at least referencing their greatest moment. I know it's yeah. tired from the clip shows yeah. and, you know, we've all seen it a thousand times. But <laughs> the best thing about the clip, and I don't think there's a single person listening to this who uh, will not know what I'm talking about. Mm. Um, you see Matt Bianco yeah. in their similar predicament. And they clearly think it's fucking <laughs> hilarious, yeah. like any normal person would, right? Like try to stifle the laughter. Um, you watch Five Star, Stedman is fuming. Mm. He's not just personally insulted. He's being driven to a boiling rage by the reality of a disrespectful world. And it's not that it's cruel, it's that it's disrespectful. Mm. Um there's something extremely strange and creepy about his face when he's uh, has to confront what most kids are actually like. And they never answered the question either, did they? No, oh. oh, no. But the thing is, oh, like this was so, in. So. I mean, imagine how terrifying that. Sorry, just just like experience empathy for for a tiny moment. Like, cause you can't imagine. You imagine what it's like because you don't have any media training. Like, you know, I I don't know when this when this first became a thing. But Christ, if I was going into that situation, I would certainly want to have learned how to put my face if something like that happened because what are you going to do you know what are you going to do in that situation you can't swear back can you and you can't you can't write what are you going to do i think a lot of people would just go uh, uh, you know i don't know having having received enough letters and latterly <laughs> electronic messages uh telling me basically the same thing as that lad told five star i never cease to find it hilarious yeah well, well, I think you should me. go into media training then. This is this is actually this could actually be your calling. It's like, look, people are going to tell you that you're fucking crap, and it's going to be hilarious. Yeah, I mean, if I was Stedman, I would have just got my cock out and said, uh, "Why does your dad want this?" <laughs> <laughs> it's a shame you weren't in Five Star. I know, I know. Yeah, five Star <laughs> and Al. And do you think that political party in Italy named themselves <laughs> after this band? Oh. Wouldn't you, if you were a political correspondent, wouldn't you want to go to a press conference and just say, yeah, five star, why are you so fucking crap? <laughs> I think they've got a similar approach to financial planning. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so the following week, Find the Time jumped three places to number seven, its highest position. The follow-up, Rain or Shine, got to number two for two weeks in October of this year, held off the top spot by Don't Leave Me This Way by The Communards and True Blue by Madonna. They'd have five more top 20 singles before Diminishing Returns set in, but by the end of the 80s, they had to sell the mansion they bought in 1987 in order to avoid bankruptcy, and Stedman Pearson was arrested for indecency in a public toilet in New Malden. After moving to America and hanging it out for a few more years, for want of a better word, they split up in 1994. Ten years or so ago, um, uh, their dad wanted to kind of do a reunion thing and none of them were up for it. So he replaced them with lookalikes. <laughs> <laughs> so, I've, well, I've tried to... Very easy. What, did he adopt or something? <laughs> But, Why do you have to sign papers and shit? Oh my god, I don't know, but that's just that's just too perfect, isn't it, to to verify? But um, I think they did. Also, there, there was like a and that's for having a reunion, isn't that every fucking Christmas? Well, maybe maybe not. I don't know. Um, but he's um, yeah. So there was like a Butlin show where there were three, but it was three. It wasn't even five lookalikes. It was three lookalikes miming to a no. backing track. I mean, like this is I you know I wonder if anyone has the the film rights to this because. 
Like, fucking hell. Yeah. Really confused the opposition with them all wearing the same number there. Now, come with us, won't you, to Sharkland. Down to number 40, it's Spirit in the Sky from Doctor and the Medics. Addicted to Love, and number 39 for Robert Palmer. Hunting High and Low from Aha, down to 38. Bucks Fizz at 37 with new beginning Mamba Sarah. Chart entry at number 36, calling all the heroes, it bites. Making headlines at number 35, Midnight Star. I can't wait, new shoes, down to 34. Janice's song, Brilliant Mind, from Furniture at number 33. Thank you, at 32, it's Horrible Being in Love from Claire and Friends. Up one place to 31 for Press from Paul McCartney. Cock Robin with the promise you made, down to 30. The Art of Noise with Max Headroom, Paranoia at number 29. Wham, it's the edge of heaven, down to 28. Chart entry at 27, the sexy I want to wake up with you from Boris Gardner. Lulu with Shaft at 26. Amanda Zulu at number 25 this week with Too Good to Be Forgotten. Lionel Richie is dancing on the ceiling at 24. Katrina and the Waves living down on Sun Street at 23 this week. Zoom, let's go, go, the real Roxanne at 22. And status quo powering up to number 21 with Red Sky. Happy hour from the House Martins, down to 20. Number 19, Higher Love from Stevie Winwood. And the highest new entry this week, in at 18, Panic the Smiths. Gwen Guthrie at 17, with ain't nothing going on but the rent. Venus at 16, Bananarama. And up 15 places, 215. Fight for ourselves from Spandau Ballet. Audrey Hall goes up with Smile to 14. Jesus and Mary Shane at 13 with some candy talking. Owen Paul, my favourite waste of time. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Down to 12. And Haywood's Rose is growing up to number 11. Oh, wasn't that fun, gang? So exciting. The new stuff now. Yep, top 40 breakers. Darling, 
Oh, we have some underground press from Paul McCartney. This one's courtesy of the tube. And I really am relying on your touch. grabs Janice's hand and does a rubbish Irish accent, they run down the charts from number 40 to 11. And usually yeah, in the in the 70s ones, in the early 80s ones, we do get a lot of mileage out of these, but these, these are just crap, aren't they? They're just so fucking professional. Uh, it's not that terrible a chart, though, for the era. Mm. Like Hunting mm. High and Low by Aha is in it. Uh, yeah. Real Roxanne. Uh, yes. It's a brilliant recording of uh, Bang Zoom Let's Go Go made on a tape recorder that year with me yeah. on guitar and Casio keyboard at once and my mental what? mate rapping and hitting a sweet jar with a drumstick. I suspect if I heard it now it wouldn't match up to the original but you never know. Oh, I'm never just know. I'm glad that it existed at least at, at some point. Yeah. There's also uh, um, when Mike Reed uh, reads out Gwen Guthrie ain't nothing going on but the yeah. rent. He does the second worst comedy black voice <laughs> he'd ever do. Yes. Uh, yeah. Fucking hell, yeah. I think the only one I noticed was uh, a photo of Boris Gardner, who's in at number 27 with I Want to Wake Up With You, like as if he's in some kind of old-style prison. Yeah. It's in a rock with a big hammer. Yeah. And there's also Cock Robin, who yeah. nobody else really remembers, but they always stick in my head because... This summer we got signed up for some sort of exchange program with my dad's mm. work where one year we were going to go over to Germany to stay with this family. Then the following summer they'd come and stay with us, which was hilarious because this bloke was supposed to be at more or less the same level in his company, which was a nuclear energy company, as my mm. dad was in his, which was a carpet tile manufacturing company. <laughs> and even allowing for the difference in wages between those two industries, the gulf between their standard of living and ours was comical. Like everyone always used to talk about how much richer Europeans were. And, you know, I'd been on a French exchange with the school, um, which was funny because the, the, this my exchange partner's dad was a fireman and they lived in a five-bedroom house. But this was ridiculous. Like this family lived in uh, Biblis, which is a really boring, nothingy small town in southwest Germany. So in between Darmstadt and Mannheim, it's that, really crap bit of Germany um, and they had a giant house with a table tennis room and a sauna and I stayed there and my mum and dad stayed in my mum and dad stayed in their summer house in the Black Forest <laughs> and it was really embarrassing because the following year they were supposed to come up to us but our house was too small to put them up so oh, no. we could only have their son to stay which was bad news because their son was like a parody of a horrible German kid Right, you oh, know, no. you know, there's two Germanys, same as there's two Englands and two Americas. Like all the good stuff yeah. that comes from these places is so sharp and refined because everybody else is a cunt, and it's the same in Germany. <laughs> so the cool people in Germany are really cool because everybody else is like this kid, and he had spiky brush hair and uh, a load of spots and piss catcher shoes. You know those <laughs> yes. shoes like Cornish pasties. Yes. 
and you could see his vest through his imitation white Fred Perry. And he got off on the right foot by saying to my mum the day after he arrived, I do not like this house. It is too small. Um, oh, no. Yeah, he insisted on playing my dad at chess. And when he lost, he got up without another word and stormed off to bed. Oh, and no. the next morning, my mum went in to clean his room and there were 13 chocolate bar wrappers in the bin. And he'd only Shit. been there for five days. Um. And he drove around budgets. How big were the chocolate bar wrappers, though? Oh, I don't know. It was like, uh, you know... A, a, yeah, if they were penguins, that's forgivable, isn't it? Yeah, no, I think it was uh, a five-pack of Mars bars, you know, that Fuck. stuff. And he drove my mum around budgets looking for Nutella because he oh, needed it for his <laughs> breakfast. No. Yeah, he's like, I must have Nutella. And this was like... In the 80s? Yeah, his 80s Britain. It was like an obscure luxury Fucking item. good luck with that. Yeah, yeah, I don't think you don't think ever found it. And my mum, who's never had a bad word to say about anyone, the morning he left, uh, brought out a bottle of champagne from somewhere. <laughs> opened it. Anyway, he thought I had terrible taste in music because he was into Scorpions and Der Turtenhosen. <laughs> And he thought that all the stuff I liked was very soft. So when he showed up, it's a German tradition to bring a present for your hosts. So he gave me an album and he said, I think you will like it. It is very soft. And it was After Here Through Midland, the second LP by Cop Robin, uh, which is the one one that doesn't even contain the promise you made, uh, their only Mm. British hit. So much for European Union. So they go into the breakers section, starting with Press by Paul McCartney. Born in Liverpool in 1942, Paul McCartney is Paul McFucking Cartney. After releasing the LP McCartney 2 in 1980 and splitting up wings a year later, Mr You Can Do It Right Now Please went on a tier of eight top ten hits in the first half of the 80s, including number ones with Stevie Wonder and some frogs. This is the first single from the forthcoming LP, Press to Play, and is the follow-up to Spies Like Us, the theme tune to the Dan Aykroyd film, which got to number 13 in January of this year. And it's up this week from number 32 to number 31. That, that's not a fucking breaker. That's a, that's a tapper, at least. Yeah, are they, uh, what actually is the definition of breaker at this stage in the game? I mean, what, you know, well, is it, it just something that they're using now as a kind of catch-all term for, you know... Well, because it's, it's American, isn't it? And it's supposed to be like so, something that zoomed up the charts and smashed the charts, if you will. Making waves in but, the charts. Yeah, but there's but there's not a lot of there's not a lot of big chart activity uh, this week. Mm. I have to say, it's a bit bit sluggish. Sarah, what did Paul McCartney mean to you as a as a young slip of a gal? <laughs> um, I heard of him, I suppose, but I mean, I I had so little. There's, uh, I can't. You see, I can't even form a sentence to talk about how little Paul McCartney meant to me when I was eight. You know, when this came up, it's like, well, I don't remember this at all. And also then I just spent the whole time trying to figure out what line he was on. Um, this video really displays the, the, the classic, the one true London Underground maquette, which is the sort of orange mm. and brown uh, rectangles, which, you know, sounds horrible if you haven't seen it. But, you know, I would I would quite gladly upholster, you know, most of my furniture in that. Um, yeah, and it turns out he gets off at Swiss Cottage. So I just managed to, you can just mm. see there's an S and a W, which oh, it's like, is it Swiss Cottage? Which I think makes it the Bakerloo line. Um, anyway, Taylor, say some things oh, about Paul McCartney. Well I really. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the, the, I mean, the, the, the premise of the video is that Paul McCartney's doing his man of the people thing and uh, just 
arsing around on the tube, which at the time to me was still exciting. You know, I used to go down to London about twice a year to spend my Christmas and birthday money. And, you know, being on the tube was like, oh my God, I'm in that London massive city. Oh, fucking great. And then you get sick of it really quickly to the point where now, whenever I do go back to London, you know, the train pulls in at St Pancras. It's like, yes, back on my old fucking stamping ground in the big city and everything. Mm. And then as soon as I get on the tube, I go, oh, fuck this place. I want to, I'm going home. Yeah, no, I definitely had had that kind of slightly swooning thing about the tube. It really does make the, you know, the the noise of it and the smell of it and everything really makes you go, it's like a direct shot of London to your brain. Because I didn't, um, I grew up in, um, I was born in London, I grew up in West Yorkshire. I visited London when I was probably, I was four, I think, one time. Um, And so there was definitely like a kind of sense memory thing there going, oh my God, it's the, you know, it's the tube. But um, yeah, so... And that, even though now I avoid the tube as much as possible now that I live in London and have done for many years, I'm very, very tired of, you know, cramming myself in among this kind of very, very, very weary, tense mass of humanity. Um, But still, there's that, you know, there's still a part of my mind that finds it romantic. But that's the other thing as well. You see, he kind of takes most of the romance out of it, A, by making it about himself, which, to be fair, it is his video, so, you know. But it's like, it's yeah, so... he's a lad. It's so, it's so bright. It's like the the white brightness of it is is very, um, mm. you know, I, I, it was giving me a headache. Yeah. And then you can imagine people being really fucked off. That, oh, fucking hell, there's a camera crew. And he's, oh, that's him out the Beatles. It's like, oh, I want to go home. It would have been big cameras as well. It would have been big, hefty yeah, cameras, like, big cramming lights. it. And big lights and all that, but everyone yeah. looks quite. Everyone looks quite cheery. I'd like to see, you know, the bits where everyone was just ignoring him. Yeah, you know, like people when he's there going, "Come on, everyone, <laughs> sing along to this hit that isn't out yet." You know, and I mean, uh, the, the great thing is, is that it, 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 always the, the black people that are sitting nearby or next to him, they just couldn't give a fuck, could they? It's just like, oh, <laughs> you know, I'm being filmed, and I'm I'm sitting next to a beetle, and uh, yeah, whatever. This video is the classic example of Paul McCartney's desperate need in the 1980s to pretend to be completely normal. Mm. But of course, first of all, the very act of making a big deal of this being Paul McCartney on a tube train is itself a display of difference and distance. Yeah. Uh, and also, by placing him in such everyday surroundings, it only highlights how hugely unnatural and abnormal he is. Mm. Uh He's always mugging, he's insanely self-conscious, and I don't even know how you can be that arrogantly cocksure and that self-conscious in public, like, uh, and how you can be so PR-conscious and so very bad at PR. Um, It just, so he helps an Asian lad, and he gives a really giant thumbs up to an old Jamaican lady, and... There you go, it's a totally accurate record of Paul McCartney's daily commute, casually doing whatever he can for people. It's like one of those paintings of Stalin with his hand on the head of a small child. (laughs) Something really creepy about it. But look, this is 1986 for Paul McCartney. He's coming off the back of Give My Regards to Broad Street, uh, a film which is, aside from being terrible in a way which defies even detached appreciation i watched it a few years back with a friend of mine who's also a beatles nut and a connoisseur of shit um when it finished (laughs) we just stared at each other and all we could say was imagine if you had to watch that again 
now. <laughs> it, it was just flattening. But as well as that, it was the point where he tried to come to terms with the past and he redid some of his old Beatles songs and funnily enough, they sounded much worse. Uh, the whole thing was a catastrophe and an embarrassment. Uh, and if you want a clue as to why it didn't work, by the way, um, and what was going wrong more generally for Macca at this point, he commissioned, originally he commissioned Willie Russell to write the script, didn't like the first draft, chucked it out, commissioned Tom Stoppard to write it, <laughs> didn't like that. So I did, these guys got no idea what they're doing, so he's just going to have to write his own script, which he did. And, of course, that was the one he liked. And, of course, it came out exactly as you'd expect from a slightly embarrassing dad who's never written a script in his life. So after this calamity, he tries to come back with his 1986 album, Press to Play, Mm. of which this is the lead single. And he decides he has to get contemporary, which in his mind means hiring the producer Hugh Padgham, who'd been producing Phil Collins and Sting mm. and is generally regarded as the inventor of the 80s drum sound. So thanks for that, Hugh. Yeah. You fuck up. Um, and he expected a similar level of success to Phil Collins and Sting without really having to try. I mean, he was still having number one singles a couple of years previously. Yeah. But the sessions were a bit awkward because Padgham felt that it was the producer's job to make constructively critical comments about the material. <laughs> uh, Paul felt differently. Um, then when the album came out and it bombed and it wasn't being played on the radio stations, Paul got very angry with his promotional people and decided that was their fault. So you see a pattern developing here. And then the following year, he was persuaded to team up with Elvis Costello uh, like it was Elvis Costello in 1987 was going to put some bite back into Paul McCartney's music. But unfortunately, Elvis Costello felt that being half of a songwriting partnership meant being constructively critical of the material, while Paul felt differently. So that fell apart, at which point he finally gives in, uh, tours the world playing Beatles songs and becomes a heritage act. So the pressure's off. Um, but these final years of Paul McCartney thinking he was a contemporary pop star and expecting number one singles are a bit upsetting and a bit depressing. And Press to Play got one good review in the whole world, which was in the NME. Um, really? Transparently a condition of them getting the big interview he did with them to promote it trying to reconnect with the youngsters. Absolutely shameless. But the funny thing is, he could still write a tune. Even when it wasn't a great one, it would still be there. And it would be fluent and effortless, because that's just what he does. And in the same way that a boxer doesn't lose his punch, he loses everything else first. Mm. And a, or a footballer can still do keepy-ups and back heels like for decades after he's finished as a player. So Paul McCartney could always write a tune, and still can. But that's not all there is to it. But you've got to admire the the brass balls to put out a single with a hook that goes, just tell me to press right there, that's it, yes. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And what is this, what is the song about? Because I was looking at the lyrics, he's like, is he is he talking about Linda McCartney's clitoris here or something? What, Oklahoma was never like this, never like this, never like this. <laughs> Maybe it's actually about the tube, you know, maybe it's, uh, you know, London, uh, uh, Transport for London kind of missed, missed a trick there. Um, although the mm-hmm. thing is, though, this is this is obviously a misnomer. I was getting I was getting quite annoyed at this by the end. So I was like, don't encourage people to press the button. The buttons don't do anything. No. 
if you know if you're, they don't like they light up around around the edge and then the doors open and close of their own accord they're just there to give you some illusion of control just don't to, don't do it so you, the Londoners can spot the tourists yeah basically yeah, it's like a it's feel a kind smugly of... superior because yeah, I always press the button oh wow well. yeah. oh, oh, error. Boy. no well now now you know you can just stand back smile. you can fold your arms and lean yeah. back and, and just and have a little smirk to yourself watching everyone else going it's not doing anything so the following week press jumped five places to number 26 and we'll get to number 25 a week later its highest position the follow-up pretty little head would only get to number 76 in november of this year and he'd have to wait until december of 1987 for his next substantial hit once upon a long ago which got to number 10 Oh, Paul, mind the gap between your hit singles. And it's good news, get it, for we Smiths fans. They've got the highest new entry in the charts this week at 18 with Panic. Well done, lad. We've already covered the Smiths in chart music number two, so we'll just say that this is the first new Smiths recording since the Queen is dead, and according to Johnny Marr, was written in response to Steve Wright playing I'm Your Man by Wham immediately after a news report about the Chernobyl disaster in April. What was he supposed to play? Well, exactly, yeah. Put on some sombre, you know, threnody for the victims of... And apparently it's a load of bullshit because I'm Your Man had had been out of the radio one playlist for months, so... I don't know. Anyway, it's this week's Ice New Entry at number 18. It's Cod's Wallop, this record. (laughs) I'm not... I'm not a like a revisionist, particularly when it comes to the Smiths, because I do think they made some astonishing records, and at one point were certainly one of the best groups in the world. But when you're objective and critical and realistic, their lows are as low as their highs are high, and this is not the lowest. I mean, it's not. This is okay. It's not shed seven, you know, but it's lowish. Um, and yeah, you sort of don't want to go on too much because the Smiths are the most over discussed group on earth. But this is, you know, if you want to know why in the end they weren't quite as good as they could and should have been, this is a good place to start. Uh, I mean, for start, this is Johnny Marr's boozy period. Uh, so the music is a bit lazy and swollen up and lethargic. And obviously it's just metal guru ripped off, but with a fizz gone out of it. And the lyrics are embarrassing. Um, and do the, the lyrics do what crap comedians do and substitute crap local references for any kind of imagination or wit. And then there's that toe-curling bit about hanging the DJ, which is like Jasper Carrot pretending to get worked up about Sun Readers and Reliant Robins. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a pointless and unimaginative gripe about something unimportant i mean if you're going to criticize djs as we know very well it takes a bit of work to do it in a way that it doesn't just sound like a bore in tartan slippers you know mm. and it's music biz griping as well it's 
is just outraged that his records weren't being played on Radio 1 in the daytime, which is hardly surprising yeah. when you've been putting out singles like Shakespeare's Sister and that joke isn't funny anymore, you know. It's just mm. graceless whining from a massive twat with no self-awareness <laughs> and a grotesque ego, which would be fine because lots of great pop music is exactly that. But, you know, mm. just if he wasn't so bloody self-righteous about it. I mean, the the, the, the hang of the DJ line and the, and the whole tone of the song, I mean, when I heard it, I didn't think it was racist at all. I just thought, oh, right, he's going on about Steve Wright and and that sort. And, you know, if he's talking about a nightclub DJ, he's talking about meat markets, and it's like, you know, I was dead against them. But, you know, by this time, I'd started going out clubbing and everything, and because of what my mates were into, I was dragged to endless fucking student discos, and it's just like I'm just surrounded by people with shit hair and shit T-shirts listening to shit music, and it's like, yeah, Morrissey, if you don't like what that DJ's playing, you know, go to one of the fucking dozens of other places in town that are playing your fucking songs. Yeah, he was actually being being very disco sucks about it, wasn't he? That's exactly, he, you yeah. know, You don't necessarily pick it up at the time, and, and now, if, you know, if you, if you look at it, what he's like now and, and trace it back, and obviously the, the way that he's showing his ass now, and there's... It, you know, it's it's dimin- you know, the numbers of people who were actually at all startled or... or or kind of wrong-footed by this are diminishing to not... I mean, imagine being one of the people who is like, but but I thought, you know, or someone who's that deep in yeah. denial that they now can't see it. And it's like, and then you trace it back and you look at the old interviews and you go, yeah, no, he's actually always, he's actually always been like this. And Hiding in of, plain sight. Kind of, but there's a sort of emboldening and also a sort of wizening. There's this kind of, you know, and, and the sort of atrophying of anything that was... That was um, kind of keeping that in, in balance or was, was pushing back against that in, in himself, you know, and it's mm. just, you just don't want anything to do with anything to do with him now yeah. at all. I thought exactly this. I thought, no, he's talking about Steve Wright and he's talking about Gary Davis, mm. but of course... Yeah, if it had said, kill Steve Wright, if that had been the chorus, it'd be fucking yeah. brilliant. I'd have, I'd have bought it. But it was the... Fucking hate Steve because Wright. Because I think the interview <laughs> to promote this, it might have been a bit later, where... He was challenged yeah. on this and started saying, well, there's actually a, a conspiracy to keep white groups off top of the pops. Um, yeah. And- well, yeah, yeah. As if fucking Barry Gordy and Russell Simmons and Jam and Lewis and Quincy Jones were all meeting up in a fucking castle going, oh, God, the wooden tops have got a new record out soon. We must suppress it. Yeah, with, with Michael Hurl. Yeah. He actually used the expression in that interview, black supremacy, as well, which, I, which I'm loath to even... About reggae, it's the kind yeah. Of, but, you know, it, it's, it's uh, you know, well done, Morrissey. Do, have you actually invented reverse racism there? Yeah. Probably not even, but, you know, if, if you want to believe that, then I'll throw you that bone. Yeah, what what was it about Musical Youth and Boris Gardner and UB40 that was that, that Morrissey saw that we didn't? <laughs> I, may, I may have said this before on this podcast about Morrissey. I can't remember, but... He's like Fidel Castro in that you can understand how when he first appeared, people felt very optimistic. But with hindsight, mm. it's painfully obvious that it was always going to end up the way it did. I mean, he's yeah. he had plenty of good stuff to sing, but he never really had anything worthwhile to say. When you look at old... Yeah. I was watching some old Smith stuff on YouTube the other week and found a clip from Whistle Test, which is them in the studio making meat well it's them in the studio 
obviously having finished making Meet is Murder, but pretending they're still recording it <laughs> in some hilariously fake studio footage. Uh, but Morris is there talking about himself and his band, and you think, what spell did he cast over people at the time? Because you look at him now, and if some bloke, if you met some bloke who talked like that, who was that affected mm. and that embarrassing and that absurdly sooty, um, you'd laugh in his face. It's incredible to watch now. What a burk. What an idiot. And he never says anything particularly uh, insightful or intelligent or even witty. Well, there was there was a um, I think there was a certain mag- magnificence about his twattery for for a time, mm. you know, which would that's the thing that would that would get you because there wasn't anyone else um, kind of twirling around in that kind of weirdly there's a weirdly sort of subsumed aggression to it, you know. Mm. There's this kind of like there's it's a very sort of fuck you um, flailing about, um, which you know had its own had its own charm and you know, but yeah, the thing is that people have you know people have different channels and i know that people everybody still furrows their brow over the great conundrum of kind of you know oh how can this how can this beautiful work come from such an asshole but mm. it's it's not really once you understand that like you know the ego of morrissey and the universe expressing itself through the vessel of morrissey are two completely separate things um that means you can still enjoy because people are going god i don't know if i can still enjoy this yeah of course you can yeah it's just it just takes a bit of a you just have to put... Basically, I don't let people... People being assholes will not ruin their work for me. It's like, fuck you. I'm not mm. going to have you ruin your good works for me. Like, that's yeah. the way that... I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to buy any more Smith's records, but mm. um, I'm not going to... Uh, per, you know, it's not like, right, I delete all of this and I throw all of this out of the window. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I can still enjoy it because it's separate enough from Morrissey yeah. Um, as 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 an asshole, that that I'm I'm still able to do that, and it just it just takes a little bit of, um, it's just kind of a muscle, a mental muscle that you have to develop, really. And of course, it, it varies. Every single case is different. You know, it's like there are other people who it's like, um, I probably not really. You know, I'll probably if I'm given the choice to watch a Roman Polanski film and another one, I'll probably watch the other one. Mm. But you know, it's it it the Woody Allen one. <laughs> I really disagree with that bit. I don't think it's. Uh... I think you, it's very dangerous as soon as you start doing that. The only consideration is giving your money to people. I think, yeah, I, mm. I mean, uh, I mean, most of Roman Polanski's films after a certain point are terrible anyway, so it doesn't matter. But, you know, you can't pretend that, that his early films aren't good. I mean, also, there's, there's, there'll, be, there'll be plenty no, of... Uh, that's, not, that's not what I'm saying, though, at all. But carry on. If they are good, there's no reason to not watch them. No, I'm talking about my. Per- no, I'm talking about my. Per- you know, the, these are sort of personal decisions. Yeah. Sometimes, like somebody's shit, will loom so large over their work, it's going to cast such a shadow over it that it, it actually that it it um, taints the work for me. Um, mm. In the case of, um, you know, in in Morris's case, it's like it, I I um, I didn't get into the Smith until I was at university because you know, which seemed appropriate. Um, so that you know, it's that that work has gone into my brain at a particular point in my life where it's not I I kind of can't disentangle it but also I think that it's good enough there's I mean there's no it's not it's not maths you know it's just it's a it's a matter of like um I can't possibly quantify how much of an arsehole Morrissey is now I'm not sure that the instruments exist to Mm. do this but um 
yeah, I don't know. I don't know why I brought Roman Polanski into this. You know, I'm not I'm not comparing Morrissey. I'm not comparing you to Roman Polanski. All right, sit down. <laughs> but yeah, I will still listen to this Smiths, but maybe not as much as I did. This is very similar to the conversation we've had about Gary Glitter. You don't necessarily, your your intellect isn't necessarily going to get in the way and go, now look here, you can't, you you know, you're not allowed to in, to enjoy, you, you can't feel these feelings anymore. Your feelings mm. are going to be there. It's just like you mm. might need to put them in a slightly, you know, you might need to put them in a slightly different context or not. Like, I'm not sure how much it matters if it's just a matter of, you know, like who's, who's watching. But um, anyway, in conclusion... Morris is a cunt. Morris is a cunt, yeah. But I guarantee you that there will be plenty of people scattered through pop history who are much bigger cunts than Morrissey, but you don't know no, because yeah. they weren't so fond of the sound of their own voice. Yeah. That's true. Yes. Good yeah. point. But oh, my God. I wonder who... Yeah, but we'll, they'll all be winkled out eventually and then we'll have to go through this whole rigmarole again. Yeah. But the video... I've I've been scouring the internet for this video and I can't find it anywhere. There's there is an official video for this uh, on YouTube, uh, but it's not this. Well, this is uh, directed by it's... Derek Jarman, um, so that oh. might have something to do with it. Copyright. And who's the bloke in it? No idea. Nah. Sorry, I can't help. But it's a, it's it's a, it's a, it's a very jarring video uh, for for Top of the Pops in 1986, isn't it? Yeah. There's a lot more juddering. There's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a, uh, it's kind of running, running around London frantically, with a juddering camera. So anything else to say about this song? I mean, personally, as a, as a Smiths hater, uh, it's 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 uh, one of their least worst songs. Oh really? <laughs> for mm. me, for me, yeah. But the problem is, is the only thing I can remember about it is uh, a few months later. Uh, we were, me and my mates from a new college were all on the bus and uh, one of my mates started singing Hang the DJ, Hang the DJ over and over again at intermittent periods. Um, and there, there was another girl who was sat next to him and uh, her dad had hung himself the previous month. And I'm just looking no. at him, just looking at him out of the corner of my eye going, mate, no, 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 which encouraged him to do it more. He didn't know and uh, was told afterwards and was absolutely mortified. I don't know if he was a DJ or not, which would have made it worse, but still, yeah. Or oh, his initials were DJ. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing, another thing to hate Morrissey for. <laughs> so the following week, Panic jumped seven places to number 11, where it stayed for two weeks. The follow-up, Ask, got to number 14 in November of this year. The next month, Morrissey did an interview with Frank Owen of Melody Maker where he responded to Green Gart's side of Scritti Politi calling the song racist by claiming that reggae was the most racist music in the entire world and said, obviously to get on top of the pops these days, one has to be, by law, black. I think something political has occurred amongst Michael Hurl and his friends and there's been a hefty pushing of all these black artists and all this discified nonsense into the top 40. I think as a result that very aware younger groups that speak for now are being gagged. The thing with Morrissey <laughs> yeah. is no one in the history of racism has ever been, no one in the history of saying things has ever been yeah. given more chances and more benefit of the doubt, have they? And I know because I used to do this, you know, to my... Um, and I'm not going to say, oh, God, I wring my hands. Oh, why didn't I know immediately from the start? Um, because, 
you know, I mean, maybe maybe I should, I, I probably should actually take a look at myself in that way, but it's like so many mm. people, and it's it's kind of heartbreaking, really, because so many people have given him, have extended such good faith yeah. towards him, and he is just, he's really thrown it back in everyone's face, you know, because he, he is a genuine misanthrope. I used to think that it was sort of a, that it was a pose, because everything about, you know, mm. so much, everything about him is a pose, and I thought for a long time that it was sort of a, you know, he was, it was not, it was a posture, but it actually seems to be who he is really, really deep down, which is, you know, what we just all have to face up to now. And of course, you know, we, we can all, always chuck in the review of this song in Smash It's. Um, I'm sorry to say, but I find them very depressing. The lead singer's voice sounds like he's in pain. Is that Morrissey? It says in the song, hang the DJ, but where would they be without them? If you don't like DJs, you still like them because they play your records and that's what sells records. I don't think they'd like to hang Janice Long or John Peel, would they? I wouldn't play it, though. He can't sing and it gives me a headache. In all his interviews, he's Mr Nasty too and goes moan, moan, moan. Thus spoke the rapt seer, Samantha Fox, in Smash Hits. is great in the charts it's called camouflage i've tuned stan ridgeway's guitar especially for him so it should be hunky dory Reed, next to some horrible neon, alludes again to the fact that he thinks he's a musician, the fucking bellend, as he introduces Camouflage by Stan Ridgway. Born in California in 1954, Stan Ridgway first came to our attention as the lead singer of Wall of Voodoo, who had a number 64 hit in March of 1983 with Mexican Radio, and also as a collaborator with Stuart Copeland of The Police on the single Don't Box Me In as part of the soundtrack to Rumblefish in the same year. This is the first single from his debut solo LP, The Big Heat, and it's become a surprise hit in the UK, nudging up this week from number seven to number six. Of course, this was a time when America decided that it had actually won the Vietnam War, isn't it? You know, I mean... We got deluge with all that Vietnam shit. Yeah, but this is better Vietnam nostalgia than Paul Hardcastle, who was terribly negative, I thought. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, always looking on the downside, yeah. Monte. Yeah, put me right off that wall. That did. <clears throat> this performance is is really, is really something because like I did a double take when it's like ah, oh, it's Stan Ridgeway camouflage, and this and the stage has been transformed by some incredibly eager set dresser, possibly whose whose last day it was. They've just trans- yeah, they've, they've they've dragged out the scenery from it ain't half up, mum, haven't they? It's amazing! It's amazing! You know, it'll give, it'll give you flashbacks. Um, it's yes. just, you know, there's lo- loads of green lighting and loads of vegetation, and they've like wound yeah. it around because there's that sort of weird kind of pyramidy uh, kind of gantry stuff everywhere, as as um, as as was the 
as was the style at the time. And it's all it's mm. all very lovingly festooned. It's amazing. And yeah. they've and then after a second you realise that they've actually got like a man at CNA dummy and dressed yes. him as a marine. Yes. Ah, and yeah. there's a point there lurking over Stan Ridgeway's shoulder. It's incredible. The set looks like the overgrown foot of a pylon in a field next to an A road. It's like if you poke around in there, you'll find a badger skeleton, uh, a bra, and yes. half a copy of Men Only, yes. all soaked in cow piss. A, so- a soiled bra. And a, yes. Yeah. Sadly, there was no room in the studio for the helicopters and the name palm or anything like that. So, you know, they've made do. They've made an effort, they've which is it's very rare at this point in Top of the Pops' uh, lifespan, isn't it? Yeah, I, get, I mean, I don't know if they had budget for this sort of thing because, you know, you don't you don't see it with anyone else. It's like also the, there's, um, I mean, as you'll know from, from being in studios, they're a lot smaller than they look and everyone's actually quite cramped. But like Five Star mm. hardly had room to kind of, you know, fling their elbows at all. Um, but yeah, yeah, they just kind of went. Maybe all of the budget for this episode just kind of you know went on that, and and I, I, I applaud them for it. There's also that bit where it's like the cameraman is crawling through the undergrowth <laughs> yes. and parts the foliage to see ironic country music star Stan Ridgeway performing. Um, it's good that bit. Yeah, mm. it's all it's very dramatic. It's like they've they've really kind of been been very taken by this sudden emergence of of uh, you know. After all this kind of vague stuff about fighting for ourselves and finding the time and all these very amorphous yeah. things, it's actually a story. There's an actual kind of, you know, weird narrative. It's like a kind of, um, it's like a sort of episode of Tales from the Dark Side or something, isn't it? It's like one of those slightly yeah. kind of also ran ones where you know you know yeah. exactly you know exactly what the deal is within about you know within a minute um, of yeah. going. Here's a straight. He was not. <laughs> I do remember this being. I. I think this was a thing at my school, actually, is that people, it was like, this was an awfully strange Marine. Everyone was very tickled by this. Nobody found mm. it kind of, you know, nobody found it creepy or, um, you know, and I found I was I was very sensitive to this kind of thing and I would find, I'd find everything creepy and this I, I just remember finding quite, quite amusing. But it's probably because yeah, I, I was a callow youth and I hadn't grown up to understand the horrors of war yet, you know. Yeah, but, you hadn't seen Apocalypse now, had you? No, not yet, no. 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 There's loads of the loads of the not very good episodes of the Twilight Zone are like this because uh, Rod Serling had been uh, in the Second World War despite being five foot four and not had a very nice time. So no. when in doubt, he always harked back to that for ideas. Lots of dead soldiers who weren't really dead, and vice versa. Yeah, yeah. it's quite a classic. Um, it's quite a classic trope, I suppose, isn't it? But the one thing that that's kind of niggled me about this listening because I haven't heard this for for years and years, and uh, no, um, and you know, it's not the kind of thing you dig out and listen to. Um, but yeah, it's like I've I've written fiction and stuff, and you you have to be, especially when you're doing you know sci-fi, fantasy, or horror or anything like that stuff that is made up. You you have to work extra hard to make it uh, consistent. You know, if you're going to create a world where anything can happen, you can't just go, oh, and then this happens because magic, because that's, (laughs) you know, that doesn't work for people. People are suspending their disbelief already quite high. So you have to kind Mm. of help them to keep it steady. You know what I mean? And I noticed with with this, so um, basically the bullets are flying straight through Mm. him. Um, And then, and then, uh, in in the next verse... 
he's you know there's a bullet with with Stan Ridgeway's name on it, which I guess yeah. they'd have to carve it quite small. Maybe you know yeah. probably also um, Ridgeway with no e in the you know yes. So probably <laughs> you know I wonder how many bullets he kind of got through first. You know, oh no, that's no yeah. good. I've missed. I've got no room for the a and the y. I've got to start again. <laughs> anyway, so a bullet with Stan Ridgeway's name on it flies towards him, and camouflage swats yeah. it away just like it was a fly. Yeah. And it's like, mate, you have to. Okay, I've immediately. And then he, st- he pulls a tree up, doesn't he? Starts he pulls, whacking people he pulls with a tree it, up like and starts, like Captain Hurricane, and starts laying about him with the with yeah. the tree. It's like, okay, is he? Does this mean that he can achieve solidity at will? Because <laughs> maybe otherwise, it just uh, sorry. These are the things I care about. It's like this. Uh, you yeah. know, this doesn't make this don't make a lick of sense. You're gonna go back no. and sort this out. Either he's you know he's a, a sort of a. a a full torso floating apparition or, you know, or he's a, a corporeal, he's a, you know, a zombie marine. Anyway, carry on. And meanwhile, in the undergrowth, <laughs> Roy Race looked on and thought, hmm, could do with a central defender. <laughs> <laughs> this is essentially a 50s death song uh, set in the 60s uh, and performed in the 80s. Yeah, I like the real records that are like this more mm. than I like the postmodern piss takes. Call yeah. me old fashioned. I mean, this is completely painless because it follows the pattern almost exactly. Mm. Um, and the only things missing are the semi seriousness of purpose and, you know, the raw brilliance of the backing track, which are the best bits. But mm. things, if you listen to Wall of Voodoo, um, a lot of it has this slightly wacky pastiche yeah. antique American music feel, but sort of done self-consciously freaky. So mm. even though it's not good, it does sound like itself. So that's sort of critically more defensible. But aesthetically, this is much better because it's much straighter and more melodic. Mm. Um, and there's no point in its existence, but at least it sounds quite nice. You know? mm. Yeah. The other thing that I that I clocked this on this listen as well was um, that he's uh, he makes makes reference to Charlie's in the um, in the yes. uh, the plural, which uh, from what I understand from my viewings of Apocalypse Now, um, I thought I thought Charlie was a, um, a sort of collective noun, collective proper noun, if that's if that's a thing. So it's somehow more offensive that you know. But then I didn't go to Vietnam, so I don't know what they said. Um, yeah. You weren't there. I wasn't there, man. There are a few records around this time that were like this, sort of almost novelty records, but not quite, you know, mm. with a sort of wry, slightly whimsical feel to them, you know, like uh, driving away from home yeah. by its immaterial and stuff. And it's not too horrible, but it's not really what it's all about, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It's like it's not serious enough to be serious or funny enough to be funny. So, I mean, give me Zig Zig Sputnik any day. Yeah, um, yeah, it's true. Yeah. Designer violence as opposed to um, <laughs> magical violence. Uh, you know, it, the bullet with his name on, he would only have seen that fleetingly. Yeah. So it's possible it might have said, like, made in Kazakhstan. <laughs> yeah. Because like, I think it was a Soviet republic <laughs> at the time. So yeah. they may well have been supplying the Viet Cong. Yeah. Um, yeah, just a, just a logical explanation. Mm-hmm. It would have been dead good at the end if Mike Reed had popped up from a trap door uh, dressed as a Viet Cong and, and shot him. 
<laughs> I think Except it, what actually happens is even better because <laughs> Mike Reed comes on at the end and tries to be funny and he says, yeah, and I know because I was that Marine. Yeah. And Janice Long just completely tramples on it, just doesn't yeah. even look at him yeah. and just says, nice one, Stan. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mike, Mike Reed at that point comes as near as I've ever seen him to, to any moment of kind of self-awareness by doing a little sort of shrug. And you know that, I, I'm not sure what you call it, it's the little grimace that you do. It's the kind of eek when you realise that you've been a twat. Yeah. Yeah. He does a little, ooh, he, I've been a twat face. And, try, you mm. know, there's a tiny moment where I was like, I almost, I, I almost feel for him as a human being but then the moment passed you remembered UKIP Calypso yeah so the following week Camouflage nipped up two places to number four its highest position but it would be his only chart hit in the UK and he moved into film soundtracking down the top 10 Reed speculates that the worst thing that ever came out of the Queen's fanny and his Shetland pony of a bride are currently rutting on a big ship to this week's number one The Lady in Red by Christa Berg Born Christopher Davidson in Argentina in 1948 Christa Berg was a son of a diplomat who was brought up in a castle in Ireland and took his mum's name when he got into music after signing a deal with A&M in 1974, de Berg supported Supertramp on their Crime of the Century tour and released the LP Far Beyond These Castle Walls, which charted nowhere in the world apart from Brazil, where it got to number one. It wasn't until 1982 that he made any kind of dent on the UK singles chart when Don't Pay the Ferryman got to number 48 in October of that year and his first top 40 hit was this song about his missus bothering to make a bit of an effort for a change and being lecched on by loads of blokes at a do. 
After it was revealed that it was the favourite song of Lady Di, who thought it was about her, and the recently married Sarah Ferguson, it rocketed up the charts, and it's moved up this week from number two to number one, knocking Papa Don't Preach by Madonna off the top spot. Where to begin with this? Her song's always been a bit of an easy target. It is. Um, because it's so fucking shit, yeah. Fucking cat shit. Yeah, precisely. Is but, this the worst number one single of the 80s? No. Let's discount the novelty shit. No, I don't think so. Go on. Tell me something worse. Yeah. Because people always say, I just called to say I love you. And, you oh, know, I think, I think that, all right, and okay, it's, it's a crap record. But that song, if Stevie Wonder had recorded that in 1969 or in 1974 or in 1977, it would have been all right. Christa Berg could have recorded this at any time in the history of the world and it would still stink of unwashed cock. Yeah, there is no, there is nothing that you could do to this song. There's no instruments that's been invented that would make this song good. I, I don't know what it is. It's just... It, it's. It's just this kind of sludge. It's like the kind of, it's like what you get behind your taps, isn't it? But in kind of oral yes. form. Yeah. And you don't know what it is and you're sort of compelled <laughs> to look. It's like, oh God, what the fuck is it? Um, yeah, I was just kind of, I sort of marvelled at it. You know, again, something I have not listened to for a long time deliberately. It's something that yeah. you do as you grow up and you, you know, you, you uh, make sure that you avoid the kinds of places where Lady in Red might might assail your ears but yeah it's mm. it's so bad i'm trying to think of just to be devil's advocate i'm trying to think of something <laughs> no. to say in its defense i mean as yeah. middle of the road ballads go it's neatly written and musically coherent mm. uh, the trouble is it just yeah it bleeds mawkish sincerity and mm. bland devotion and it just seems to encapsulate something rank and objectionable about our stupid culture right like mm. cheap and soft-headed and creepy and the attempts to make it sound sophisticated are both loathsome and pitiful it's like mm. it's like avalon by roxy music if it had been baked by greg's no. <laughs> <laughs> it's like someone's gone in brian ferry's house and smashed all the objet d'art and replace them with plates from the Franklin Mint and like sort of mock crystal glasses that are free from the petrol station with five gallons yeah. of four star. It's, yeah. The music of your childhood will will uh, kind of send you, you know, it sends you back there. And I was trying to think, what does this, mm. does this put me back in a particular place, a particular mood in my childhood? And I thought it just reminds me of being ill when I was a kid and just like having headaches really? that wouldn't go away. And like, you know, but or being uh, like in, in a in a car at night and it was raining and I had and I felt really car sick and there wasn't anywhere else I could go. Or uh, just like hallucinating with flu. That's the thing, there's this queasiness about it. What it reminds me of is um it was like the second phase of weddings. You know, a lot of my mates and sort of cousins and stuff were were obviously not listening to Terry Hall and getting married when they were 18 or 19. And, you know, even though they didn't really particularly want that song on, it got fucking played. And you just have to sit there with a, trying to look for vegetarian alternatives at the buffet, knowing that there was only crisps and fucking bits of carrot. Yeah, and, and, and everyone... And just basically watching your uncles and aunties fucking copping off with each other again. 
That's where it reminds me of this song. Yeah, it takes me back. It takes me back to um, that weird sort of aspirational lower middle class world God, that I was in in the second half of the 80s. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sort of reeking of British Isles misery. And <laughs> everyone who's middle aged is middle aged by the old rules, you know. Yeah. Like there's blokes in sensible cars just driving nowhere. Slightly confused eyes, wondering what the hell happened, you know. Yeah. And the women in M and S slacks with that sort of Viennese whirl hairdo, which was <laughs> compulsory after the age of thirty-five. Just yeah. too tired for life. And yeah, their horrible, resentful kids have been packed off to grandma's, and they <laughs> open a bottle of pomade and retire to the bedroom with the yeah. with the shiny formica built-in wardrobe doors, you know, and the yeah. TV sound leaking in from next door through the new build walls. And they they put this on their tape player and 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 fail to have sex because <laughs> they don't fancy each other. They both no. fancy young, attractive people like everyone else. And, yeah. and at the time, that was, this was like pure doom to me. You know? <laughs> this, sound, this record sounded like creeping death. And yeah. the, the, the sort of slushy, Heavy echo on this record was like the echo of the morgue door slamming shut. <laughs> God preserve us. I, I was trying to think of who would actually fucking buy this record, but it is it is for people who've heard Wonderful Tonight by Eric Clapton and thought, oh, that's a bit too ethnic. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit edgy. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and the lyrical content is, is fucking horrible. It's basically saying everyone at the, at the fucking... Christmas party wanted to fuck you and it was dead good. Well done. Yeah, because you, you got to go home with a bloke who looks like he should be throwing potatoes at a cow. <laughs> or having boiling yeah. oil tipped over him from the battlements. <laughs> yeah. So all the front row of this top of the pops went home with a bubonic plague. <laughs> yes. <laughs> standing next to this guy. Uh, yeah, he's, well, he's, got a sort of, he's got a red shirt on. Is it buttoned all the way up? I think it's I think red shirt buttoned all the way up with mm. no tie and a sort of giant de- like denim bag of a jacket. White. White, yeah, denim bag and white strides. It's horrible, it's, is it? With, with the sleeves rolled up. The sleeves are, are, are yeah, there is there is some forearm on display. But he's just you know, yeah. he's he's the, And padded shoulders. It, 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 there's nothing to preclude. If you are if you are an un there's nothing to stop unremarkable looking people from getting into music. You don't have to, you know, there are there are pop yeah. stars who look amazing and who look like they're from another planet. There are people who look like Christa Burgers. You know, there's nothing wrong in theory with him being number one, but uh, there's everything wrong with it. He just looks like he's wandered in from something. Yeah. He doesn't even... It's like, you know, there are people who you feel awkward for them, but they don't... At least they don't... I'm really acutely sensitive to like other people's kind of feelings of awkwardness and going, oh God, oh God, you know. But he just looks mm. completely comfortable... But still yeah. awkward, and I think the awkwardness just comes from, just comes from you looking at Christa Berg going, what's yeah. he doing there? That jacket is exactly the kind of thing my mum would buy for my dad before we went on holiday. Because <laughs> my dad, my dad <laughs> couldn't stand going clothes shopping, so my mum bought shit for him. And he's like, oh, we're going on holiday, uh, or it's summer, or is is this white jacket that's going to be totally unsuitable <laughs> for every other time you wear it apart from the first time? 
It's going to attract every fucking spillage in the pub. And, <laughs> uh, oh, what's he look like again? Oh, how big is that? Oh, this will do. <laughs> it is- and my dad would wear it without question. He didn't give a fuck. It is a total panic buy and it probably cost, yeah. you know, probably cost oh, a yeah. mint. It's probably a really expensive fucking bit of Gucci, you know. Yeah. But, it is- but it's designed for someone who's tall. That's the thing. Yeah. Because mm. it's quite a sort of billowy, loose jacket. Well, I guess George, you know, you could, George Michael could, could pull it off. Yeah. You know, that would work. Yeah. Um, I was going to say there was a, um, I can report a recent sighting, I think this was last year sometime, Ooh. of, uh, of, uh, of Christopher, who is uh, still, uh, you know, out and about town, um, wearing, uh, sp- sporting, no, you, you can't wear these, you must sport them, red <laughs> leather trousers. No. Leather and red. Um, oh, for fuck's sake. And apparently he was with um, a much younger woman who had, and I quote, his face, but long hair. Oh, no! <laughs> oh, what was she wearing? Uh, I, I, reports are, um, reports are sketchy on this. Blonde hair. Uh, blue, I think they were, they were, they were just blinded by the, the fact that this is Christopher who, who is how old now? Oh, t- too old. For, too old for them trousers. <laughs> like, well, I, when he made this record, he was 38. Um, that's weird because that's, that's younger than any of us. Yeah. But more than that, it's younger than a lot of other people who've still had some life in them and yeah. not seemed rancid and creepy. <laughs> it's not really natural for someone of 38, which is an age where you've stopped accelerating, but you haven't quite begun to slow down, mm. uh, to walk around looking like this and giving off this kind of vibration. It yeah. looks like he should be tossing himself off in a shed. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm pinning up newspaper clippings all around saying manhunt underway as two more bodies found. You know? <laughs> Setting up a camera in the toilet. He's like, if Paul Daniels had never learnt magic, this is how he'd have had to woo the lovely Debbie McGee with creepy, pandering balladry. It's not right. There's something just not right about it. And the, the one thing I want to chuck in here, I, 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 I'm sure we're all conversant with the film The Room. The Tommy Wiseau the film, The Room. Oh, yes, yes. Fuck, yes. Do you think, do you think that Tommy Wiseau wanted to have the lady in red on the soundtrack? Probably when he's shagging and showing oh. his horrible fucking arse off. Oh, my God. Because what colour is Lisa's dress? Oh. It all makes sense, doesn't what? it? You know, and if there is a God... Christopher's final fucking moments on this planet will be him sniffing that red dress and shouting, Why, Lisa, why? <laughs> and be shooting himself in the mouth. <laughs> God, I hope that's live on telly. Oh, oh, God. Oh, doesn't he? Yeah, I've got, I'm, I'm having, I've only seen it once. I went to see it at one of the screenings where everybody, you Throwing know, makes a tremendous racket and throws shit. It's very entertaining. Yeah. But yeah, he he smells the dress and he sort of rubs it yeah, on. Oh no! Why crush, have you made me think it? of this? Yeah. These are like <laughs> was the axis of the room and Lady in Red. It's yeah. just uh, I don't think you're supposed to cross those streams. So Lady in Red stayed at number one for three weeks, eventually being usurped by the violent racist "I Want to Wake Up with You" by Boris Gardner. The follow-up. Fatal Hesitation only got to number 44 in September of this year and his attempt to get his 1975 Christmas song A Spaceman Came Travelling stalled at number 40 in December, although the single Missing You got to number 3 in November of 1988. 
Years later, his wife revealed that she hated the song and refused to wear red ever again. (laughs) Although Chris got his revenge by nobbing their children's nanny while she was recovering in hospital from a broken neck. (laughs) Yeah, let that that hang in the air. He was last in the news when he told Gloria Hunniford on a BBC TV show that he had healing powers that caused a crippled man in the West Indies to walk. And when he passed his hands over the legs of the injured Liverpool defender Marcus Babble, he said he could move his toes more easily, probably because they were curling up in embarrassment as having to... <laughs> what a knob. from Christopher, congratulations, and that is Lady in Red. Right, next week, Mike Smith's fingerprints will be on this very microphone. We're going to leave you tonight with a great band. This is It Bites. Hope this goes top ten. This is Calling All the Heroes. Good night. After telling us that Mike Smith will be on next week, meaning we probably won't ever see that episode in our lifetimes, Reed introduces one last video, Calling All the Heroes by It Bites. Formed in Cumbria in 1982, It Bites started out as a covers band before splitting up and going their separate ways in 1983. A year later, however, they all met up by chance in the pub, decided to give it another go and moved to London, where they were eventually signed by Virgin. Although their first single flopped, the follow-up, this one, has just entered the top 40 at number 36. One of the more appropriately named groups of the 80s would also accept it sucks and it blows. (laughs) Yes. I was thinking, like, what, you know, because obviously... You go through, any band goes through a lot of options before they settle on, uh, you know, over many, many months. How about this? How about this? Oh, you know, and it's a very mm. tiresome process. But I do wonder what the meeting was. You know, it's like it chafes, you know, or it, yes. it kind of <laughs> tingles, but like not continuously, you know, that yeah. sort of thing. It throbs. <laughs> you see, that would be... Great band name. That would name. be amazing. I mean, they would look the absolute opposite of It Bites and everything about them would be the opposite mm. of It Bites. There is a In the universe where the Jesus and Mary chain occupy the position in people's hearts that the Stone Roses do in this universe, that's the universe where It mm. Throbs are basically like like Cameo, but, but better. before we move on I'm going to give you a quote from their interview in the latest issue of Smash Hits they say in the 70s people had to be able to play their instruments to get anywhere it seems that nowadays all you have to do is be a pretty face play synthesizers and backing tapes and you're made but I think music's going to have to go back to the 70s because the public are getting sick and tired of bands who can't play and then house music came along (laughs) Yeah, in, Prescient. in the early to mid 80s, it was always possible to tell which of the old pop groups were old punks and which yeah, were old proggers. Yeah. yeah, we've had this, we've had right. this conversation many a time. Yeah, but now they they didn't have to pretend anymore. No, so it's like if somebody said, "Let's take uh, the worst and most sterile kind of late 80s record company pop 
and spice it up a bit with the worst and most sterile kind of British prog. It's like it's like ordering someone who's standing up to their waist in piss to touch their toes. Like you think, <laughs> it's okay. Well, let's try making prog really clean and zippy and eighties mm. cokey and yeah. waxy faced and and winnerish. Just in just in case you end up with something interesting, yeah. But if yeah. you end up with it, bites, drown it in the fucking bathtub. You don't <laughs> put hundreds of thousands of pounds of major label money behind it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like it's a bit, and also it's so natural that they should be from Cumbria as well. Mm. Same way that like Marillion were from Aylesbury. You know what I mean? These are the places where prog never died. You'd always yeah. find middle class lads learning the guitar who've decided that this is real, serious, quality music, you know. Mm. Like when I was living in the sticks, there were loads of kids in the year below me who were in the Yes and Jethro Tull. There was this lad with really long God. hair who used to play the flute standing on one leg. You know? No! Yeah, yeah. No! It's, per- it's perverted. It's perverted. It's why it also used to flourish in public schools because it's what you get when male sexuality is repressed in a sick mm. society. Like Britain, yeah. like all, all that sort of arrogant energy goes down other tubes, and yes. for hard lads it comes out as violence, and for soft lads it, uh, it's anal retentive idiot music like this. I mean, the one takeaway I've got from the video is that the lead singer and the bassist are holding their instruments like cunts. <laughs> yeah, really you know, high up, really, really high, high up, up over the nipples. Yeah, it's a shame he couldn't have held it about eight inches higher. Then we wouldn't have had to look at his stupid children's theatre Nazi face. <laughs> Isn't it? It's like fucking Emu's Pink Windmill Show production of Au Revoir Les Enfants. I mean, uh, how can you how can you actually play your guitar like that and not feel like George Formby while you're doing it? <laughs> um, they do look... And the thing is as well, you know, I was saying, like, obviously there's no, there was no media training, but there was no kind of... Um, you don't get the sort of stage school thing either. So you do get people who just don't look comfortable at all on any and they don't look mm. like they know what they're doing it does look like they've just been sort of shoved onto a very cheap set and gone can you do this and i, I can't yeah. tell if he if he's happy or just terrified to be and you shouldn't be terrified making it it's understandable no, if you're on top of the pops it's understandable if you're yeah. just going Fuck, yeah. on top of the fucking pops you know you with that terror in the eyes but he has that somehow mm. anyway maybe he just always looked like that but also like there's a um it's very telling that, I mean, his, oh, the vocal is so strained. It was like, ah, uh, it's making me cringe. But um, he's got a decent falsetto, I will say that for him. But he doesn't close his yeah. eyes when he goes falsetto. It's like, come on, screw up your face. This is when, this, it's fucking 1986. Yeah. Screw up your face yeah. and close your eyes. And it's like, he dare not yeah. do it. It's like, he dare yeah. not. It's got that very strange vocal melody, which seems to keep landing on notes that aren't there. It's mm. like it's like an anti-tune. It's really yeah. horrible. Mm. Have you uh, looked at the lyrics to this song? It's as more well? fighting. It's, uh, it's lots more fighting by people who you do not want. It's you a know. jollier run to the hills by Iron Maiden, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's the it's basically it's the, it is the ballad of the Cumbrian baby-faced Nazis. <laughs> it's like his weird bath time fantasy of annexing Northumberland. <laughs> it's like sta- him standing up on tiptoes to cut someone's head off. <laughs> I hate him. I hate he's like the what he's he's like the scrappy do version of the singer from Johnny Hates Jazz. Ooh. Yes. And the Clark Dashler. The only good thing about this record uh and this video is the way he grins with this inane joy 
as mm. he sings the lines, the men return to find their homes destroyed. Yes. <laughs> like, a, like a little kid who's just kicked the head off a snowman. <laughs> yeah. He's so yeah. happy about it. Yeah. I mean, this is a prime example as to why when people have 80s nights nowadays, they, they don't have a late 80s night. Yeah. Yeah. Because this is this is what this is what people perceive the charts to be full of at this time. This shit. Well, you get the feeling as well that Janice or you know someone like Janice in the production team had to prod the producers into including like the Jesus and Mary chain. You know, what yeah. I mean? Despite them being in the top twenty, yeah. Because um, it was you know it wasn't really the sort of thing we have on top of it. Whereas this has gone in at number thirty six and it's right there closing yeah. the show. Because it reminds those people of their university days, you know, mm. or their heady years at teacher training college, learning to be dicks. It's yeah. just, it's, I always felt in this, you know, in my angry, uh, angry teenage music snob phase, um, the one thing I think I got right was that the people controlling access to music in, you know, what those people would now call the MSM is, uh, <laughs> Uh, we're still stuck in this prog world, you know. Like, yeah. And it, I think it's true. And I think this, there's no other explanation for stuff like this being mm. so heavily promoted. When you know, did any kids like this record? I don't. Yeah. I, know, I didn't know any who did. There was the a uh, couple of years later. There was the uh, Equinox documentary called Bang Twang Kerrang about yeah. the the electric guitar, and they spent about 10 seconds on Jimi Hendrix. Uh, Charles Shaw Murray talks about it in the book Crosstown Traffic. And he goes on about this monumentally dull corporate band who had about 10 minutes spent on them while they were doing their latest tedious album. It bites. Yeah. (laughs) There you go. The late 80s in a nutshell for you there. Yeah. So the following week, Calling All the Heroes soared 19 places to number 17 and would eventually get to number six. However, the follow-up, Whole New World, stalled at number 54 and they never darkened the top 40 again. After trying a proggier direction in 1988 and then having a go at hard rock in 1989, they called it a day in 1990, but they reformed in 2006 because that's what you do nowadays. So what's on telly afterwards? Well, BBC One sees a blood transfusion van pulling into the latest episode of EastEnders. Then it's the medical show Body Matters with Graham Garden, the office sitcom Sharon and Elsa, the nine o'clock news, and then two more hours of the Commonwealth Games before finishing off with a repeat of Rhoda. BBC Two has just begun a concert by the Byruth Festival Orchestra as part of their List Week celebrations, followed by the travel show, Moonlighting, and then Bob Langley goes boating on the Shropshire Union Canal in Making Waves, then Newsnight, and rounds off the evening with an open university programme on the history of Mongolism. ITV is running Give Us a Clue, Minder, the sitcom Troubles and Strifes, where Stephen Pacey plays a hunky young vicar. Then the factual show Workout interviews the hardcore unemployed. Then it's News at 10, 
Quinter and the documentary series Burning the Phoenix about the history of the Royal College of Art. And Channel 4 is showing the first ever episode of the science show Equinox, then Gardener's Calendar, the final part of The Price, the Irish psychological thriller about kidnapping, then the documentary film Portrait of 60% Perfect Man about the life and work of Billy Wilder. So, me dears, what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow? God, you know, I don't know, because there's always whenever you say like who what we're talking about in the playground there's always what i would be thinking about and then there's what i'd be prepared to bring up in front of my classmates so Mm. uh i don't know i'd probably just go for five star anyway yeah Yeah. surely the jesus and mary chain would make a bit of an impression yeah yeah fair enough yeah i suppose they probably would i don't i i don't know i've reached the point where i cannot access my eight-year-old brain anymore because my brain is i'm in i'm in my like 60 year old brain right now oh (laughs) i'd have been talking about jesus and mary chain being on top of the pops as though this was in some way a significant cultural development um you know the site of of youth culture winning yeah, 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 yeah. Just people in black shirts singing about heroin might in- mm. inspire a, a, a spoon-fed generation to, to stop being modern and having mm. a good time like they're told to and mm. start being old-fashioned and miserable, which I suspect I'd have considered a step forward and in some way uh, damaging to the Conservative Party or something. <laughs> and what are we buying on Saturday? Five star. Um, well, I can tell you what I did buy. Uh, Jesus of Mary Chain rip-off double-pack 7-inch with acoustic versions on the extra disc, Ooh. punk rock. Um, Smith's rip-off 12-inch where uh, it's got an extra track that's an instrumental and the vinyl is half run-out groove because uh, it's only about two minutes long, punk rock. Um, and to be honest, I'm not sure it'll be that different now. I mean, I like the five-star record these days, but... Don't know if I'd pay for it because it's barely there. Mm. And what does this episode tell us about the summer of 1986? Um, I think this is where the 80s are kind of start. Well, I'm sure Taylor would say the rot is set in way before this. I think it's that you get a sense that it's running out of steam. Maybe this is kind of the the point where, you know, uh, the the Titanic has mostly gone down, but the the back end of it is still bobbing up and down for, for, you know, 10 minutes. So it's maybe. Simon Le Bon's underneath it. (laughs) <laughs> Slime of the buttons underneath it, yeah. So there's still, there's, uh, you know, everything looks okay from a certain angle, but any second now, it's just going to start, going to start really, really going bad. Mm. I think '86 was sort of the missing year of the '80s, almost. Like 1993 mm. was the missing year of the '90s. It's like a a whole year sort of caught between moments, but in a way, it's less dislikable for that because. You know, there's nothing. There's not much that's really great on this top of the pops, but it's mm. less objectionable, far less objectionable than the one we did from 1987, <laughs> um, and it's sort of less unpleasant than a lot from '85. You know, even though it's not stuffed with gold, there no. wasn't that much that was really upsetting until the very end. Yeah, I mean, the only harbingers of the future here are the Jesus and Mary Chain, aren't they? Who were the most backward-looking ones? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And on that note, 
it's time to close the book on another episode of Chart Music. But before I do, got to give you the same old bollocks about where you can find us when we're we're not doing this shit. You can go to our website, which is www.chart-music.co.uk. You can reach out to us on Facebook, if you dare, on facebook.com slash chartmusicpodcast. And you can get amongst us on Twitter, chartmusictotp. And of course, if you want to give us some money, nom nom nom, patreon.com slash chartmusic. Thank you very much, Sarah B. Thank you. Thank you very much, Taylor Parks. Goodbye. My name's Al Needham, and people who want to get rid of chart music should be shot, traitorous scum. (laughs) Chart music. Now, you might not realise this, but you are extra famous in Nottinghamshire. Am I? Yeah. Okay, and I'm going to explain why. early for that. (laughs) Um, You're extra famous in Nottinghamshire because it is widely said that one of the ways you can tell whether somebody is from Nottingham and has a proper Nottingham accent is Uh when, when they say the words, Tony Hadley from Spandau Ballet. Now, clearly, I've just said it as it should be said, um, but here's somebody else to explain how, it, if you're doing it in proper Nottingham, it would be explained. Uh, Nick says, you're only true not if you can pronounce t- <laughs> Tony Adley at a Spanda Ballet in the correct accent. So there we are. T- Tony Adley, from, I'm going to do it, I'm very bad at this. Tony Adley from Spanda Ballet. Do you think you could do it like that for me, Tony, just to prove your Nottinghamshire? Okay, Tony Adler from Spandau Ballet. <laughs> hey, that is good, I tell you. That's not bad, is that, it? Yeah, maybe you could add a top ballet on the end as well. Ballet. Top, is it top ballet? ballet? Yeah. <laughs> I've been called a few, well, I've pronounced a few things in my time, yeah. <laughs>